thank you. That was uh, Amber Burkich, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest Survivor player of all time, the champion of champions, giving us the perfect lead-in to part two of our Australia podcast. Welcome. Uh, this is Mario Lanza. This is Jay Fisher. And this is Paul, whose favorite chocolate is always a meatball sub. <laughs> and yes, we are back to continue our epic two-part uh, podcast on Survivor, the Australian Outback. I have an outline here of stuff to go over. I got a load of questions about Australia. And um, the first thing I wanted to start on, this is we got a lot of feedback after the first podcast. A lot of people were surprised when I mentioned the whole thing about Steve Irwin, that a lot of there was a lot of rumors that Steve Irwin was going to make a cameo in Survivor Australia, and, and that, that was really news to a lot of people. And so a lot of people asked me to elaborate on that. Was that really true? And my answer to that is yes, it was absolutely true. And it's really kind of hard to understand this unless you were kind of living, you're going through Survivor at the time. But, I mean, a lot of people thought Survivor was this fluke, that it was this one-time thing. It came out of nowhere. It, it got a lot of viewers, but it was just considered, I mean, by a lot of the mainstream media that it was a piece of shit. And that's the thing that, that you kind of have to understand when it comes to Survivor, that the mainstream media hated it. They, they hated reality TV. They wanted nothing to do with all these new shows that were coming in and taking jobs away from writers and actors. And man, did people want reality to TV to fail. So that was kind of the, the prevailing opinion in most of the media at the time was that Survivor was a fluke. They were going to need gimmicks to make it work the second time. And so if you understand that concept, then absolutely the story that Steve Irwin would have to come in and make a cameo makes perfect sense. We also have to really examine Australian people and things in American culture. It's all about, like, it gets really, really hot at one time, and then it goes away very, very suddenly. Mm -hmm. Paul Hogan and, uh, you know, the Crocodile Dundee movies is, a, is an example of that. Uh, and Yahoo's Serious and Young Einstein, like, we, you know, America can't get enough of this Australian new thing, and then all of a sudden, you know, with no reason whatsoever, it's gone. And Steve Irwin in the early 2000s, late 90s, was like it. He was really, really, really huge for some reason. America could not get enough of this weird guy in short khaki shorts, you know, jumping on top of dangerous animals and wrestling them for no apparent reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, and he went away after a while because he's Steve Irwin and, well, he's Australian and that's what happens. But at that time, that's a great snapshot as to what America was really craving at the time, and that is Australian <laughs> men wrestling animals absolutely and that's again when you think of australia because americans are very good at stereotyping that that is your image of what australia is if there's a show set in australia it must feature steve Irwin because he apparently is in every tv show in australia i would just like to see how they actually would have used like steve Irwin. like would he would have been like a reward or like team <laughs> captain like uh, how does it work with steve Irwin? i think maybe mike would have had to hunt him down and try to kill him there you go, and then he'd be gone quickly like everything else, Australian. <laughs> Watch this, I'm going to bathe Kimmy! <laughs> yes. By the way, um, speaking of Australia, I have a correction from last week's podcast. A reader named Holly Tomo wrote in and said, um, Lucy Lawless is not Australian, she's a New Zealander, uh, you guys are idiots. She didn't actually write, you guys are idiots, but it was implied. So she said, other than that, love the podcast. So, yes, I would like to clarify, Lucy Lawless was not Australian, we were incorrect. We podcast about Survivor, not about all this other crap. Exactly. Don't bring your politics here, man. Yeah. You know, and, you know, she, she's a Cylon anyway if you watch Battlestar Galactica. So we're all good. Exactly. And for the record, the Flight of the Concords are Australian. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a laugh out of Jay. I'm glad. All right. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, one more thing before we get into part two here. This is a really, really good email I got from a, a reader named Mike Ramon. He said, 
I wanted to bounce this theory about Deb off of you guys. She goes, or you said, I think Deb was just a victim of the pretty people versus the not-so-pretty people. It's human nature to want to be associated with fit, good-looking young people, and I think as a whole, no one wanted to be with, for lack of a better word, the older, ugly chick. And I hate, I mean, I don't like the wording of that because it's very cruel, but I think Mike might actually be onto something here where Kucha was kind of a young, fit, fun tribe, and I'm guessing Deb is not particularly fun and not particularly young, and I think there's probably some something to this theory. Oh, I think so. Uh, you know, it, it, studies have always shown in, in sociological studies that uh, better-looking people or, you know, what society considers to be better-looking people usually get uh, certain advantages that usually are more tend to be hired and other, you know, dumb stuff like that. And, yeah, the Kucha tribe had all these, you know, fit, good-looking people on there. And Deb was certainly fit. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would I would pick Deb to, you know, win an outdoorsman challenge mm-hmm. uh, over many people on Kucha. But, you know, if, in this game where you're all trying to get together and fit in, here she was just, you know, ordering people right off the bat and uh, and, and having kind of a, a mullet going on at the, at the same time. And it's like, you know, that was probably a deadly combination, as sad to say as it is. Well, I actually did some uh, rewatching uh, of Survivor of the Australian Outback in uh, in anticipation of this second part of the podcast. And uh, one of the episodes is the recap episode where they go back over the first 21 days and they show, you know, all the votes that everyone made. And so I, I was going to pay particular attention to what everyone said when they voted off Deb. And pretty much everyone said she wasn't part of the group. And I mean, I guess there, there could be a lot of truth in that, that she wasn't uh, in the pretty popular uh, group. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, Mike had a little follow-up here about Deb, which he said, Also, Deb could have gone out first or tenth. She still would have been blindsided and betrayed, and her attitude during the reunion show would have been the exact same no matter where she placed. He said, But you guys don't realize that Deb comes from a part of the country where everyone is your neighbor or friend, and I just don't think she deals with betrayal easily. So, again, this is something else that I think a lot of people might not think of, that, yeah, maybe it's just sociological or where she's from, that, you know, if a friend betrays you, that's a bigger deal than than it would be in some places of the country than others. So maybe there's more going on with Deb that we just never thought of, and I'm really glad Mike wrote in about that. Well, I just wish she would have lasted a little longer, and what I really wish would have happened is I wish she would have made it to the merge. I wish it would have been five on five. I uh, wish it would have gone to drawing rocks, or excuse me, rocks, (laughs) and so that she could draw the purple rock and get voted off, and that would end the legacy of Deb and her rocks. Nicely done. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to I was going to try to pick a yellow one, but none of that even mattered. <laughs> it's random. It's random pretty bad, Terry. <laughs> all right. I think that's all the jokes we have for now. But yeah, thanks for the uh reader feedback. We're going to have a lot more later in the show. But I think what you guys basically are here for is we're just going to go into part 2 of Australia, which as we all know is clearly the most beloved and popular stretch of any season ever, the second half of Australia. Everyone loves it, correct? Yes. <laughs> We're going to make you love it more than you think you love it. Exactly. In fact, um, I'm thinking we should just jump right in and talk about the elephant in the room here. This is what everybody has wanted us to talk about. And this is, what happens if Mike doesn't fall in the fire? Does a does an Ogacore member still win the game, or do things change significantly? Well, I don't know exactly where. I can't remember the exact source of this interview. I think it's some of the bonus features of um, on the Australian Outback DVD. But apparently... Um, 
Roger, Elizabeth, and Mike had made some kind of deal earlier in the day before Mike fell in the fire, maybe it was the day before, really recently, had kind of solidified some Final Three alliance. And I know that recently, when Jeff Varner was asked about, you know, what would have happened if uh, Mike hadn't fell in the fire, um, maybe this is, you know, 11, 12 years later talking, but Jeff, Pro, uh, sorry, Jeff Probst, Jeff Varner you know, was pretty, you know, key on the idea of bringing up that he felt like he would have worked with Jerry in the future because, you know, early in those episodes, it seems like Alicia and Jeff aren't as much Team Cooch as everyone else. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. I mean, they're, that's one of my favorite parts about where they go through the list of all the people. They don't like Kimmy because about the chickens. Deb's already gone. You know, uh, Elizabeth's too big a threat, can't make to the end. Nick's, Nick's lazy and doesn't do anything. And if someone has to go, he's going to be, you know, the first. They don't like Michael because he he uh, catches uh, all the fish and, and anoints himself the leader. So, I mean, there really is no one else I think can really work with there on, on their tribe. So, I mean, I think, I mean, the game might have been more more interesting as far as seeing gameplay evolve more. But, I mean, then again, you never know. I think, you know, does a Kucha win the game versus does an Ogokor win the game really depends on what would have happened at that immunity challenge uh, that didn't take place because Mike fell in the fire. If Kucha wins and Okakor has to go to Tribal Council, and they go into the merge with a 6-4 to four advantage, I don't think the game is complex enough. I think maybe, you know, they could have voted, voted off certain people, and maybe Jeff and Alicia used Jerry in order to get themselves ahead on the Kucha tribe, but I really think that if they go in 6-4, a Kucha member wins the game, because I think that's just how uh, it was played back then. But if Kucha loses that immunity challenge, and they have to go to Tribal Council to make it go down to 5-5, five to five, I... To me, like I said, like we saw, Roger and Elizabeth were a pair, and it looked like Jeff and Alicia were a pair. Mm-hmm. And I, the deal with uh, Roger and Elizabeth and Mike, and I think Jeff and and Alicia, even though they didn't like Mike, they, I think they had conversations about using Mike for this, that, and the other thing. So Mike would have been caught square in the middle of those two pairs. And then there's Nick, and I think probably Nick gets voted out there as much as we love Nick, Nick or Mike, to tell you the truth, uh, one of those might, might go at that tribal council and then they go into the merge. And, and I think that Ogacor, if they go in 5-5, five, five, I think Ogacor had a really good plan for uh, what they pulled off at the merge anyway. Yeah. So I, I think that if they go in 5-5, five, five, I think Ogacor still, in my opinion, has the upper hand on the game, whether or not Mike's there. But uh, Mike would Mike would make it interesting, I think, because Mike's a competitor. He would, you know, some of these immunity challenges. You just never know, and it could all spiral from there on out. But uh, it, it's an it's certainly an interesting idea, one way or the other. Yeah. Well, the thing with, like you said, if if they go in five five, Ogakor does the same plan as before. They get Colby to draw all the votes towards him. You know, Kucha loses because of the tiebreaker. So I don't think anything changes if it's five five, no matter which five Kuchas it is. I don't think it makes a difference. Now. Right. I think for purposes of this, of this discussion, let's just assume that Kucha wins that merge or that that uh, immunity challenge, and they go into the merge six four. Now, what do you think happens if it's it, six four? Well, who goes out at Ogakor? Amber, Jerry. Uh, that's an interesting question. You got Keith, Colby, and Tina. Obviously, are a trio. I mean, they were the quickest to dispose of Jerry, and they know the merge is coming. Maybe they vote off Jerry, knowing she has two votes. Well, I guess it doesn't matter about the the time. Yeah, the yeah I don't know. I'm assuming it's going to be Jerry, just because no one had any respect for Amber whatsoever as a threat, as you saw later in the game. So I think it almost has to be Jerry. Yeah, and she has the, she has votes, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, but again, let's just say it's 6-4, Kucha goes in, uh, Ogokor goes in without Amber or Jerry. I mean, they're kind of interchangeable at that point. So, But who well, do you think wins from Kucha? I mean, I'm assuming just because we know 
people didn't have cross-tribe alliances back then. They're, they weren't going to team up. They just never did back in the second season. So it's get, probably going to be Akucha. And Nu, who do you think takes it? I think it all boils down to Nick Brown, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it's funny. That's I have a friend named Ryan Christ who wrote a... Uh, uh, like a, a fan fiction type story a couple of years ago, like 2003 or so, basically what would have happened if Kucha goes into the merge on May, uh, uh, 6-4. And he came to the exact same conclusion. It really all comes down to Nick. And in his version of the story, he had Nick winning, which I'm not sure that that happens or not, but he is a very key pawn right in the middle. Yeah, because if, if Roger and Elizabeth are together and mm-hmm. Jeff and Alicia are together, mm-hmm. and you know Jeff Jeff says in this in on Rob's podcast he'd work with Jerry, but we're saying Jerry's not there anymore. Yeah, so we're kind of assuming that uh, Ogakor for for better or for worse gets Pagong back of this game. Yeah, and we're left kind of with the six Kucha, and they can sort of k- take control. So there's Roger and Elizabeth, there's Jeff and Alicia, and then Mike and Nick are caught in the middle. And mm-hmm. if we believe that Mike is with Kimmy and Roger, if Nick is with Jeff and Alicia then they'll need to pull another one over, maybe Colby because he's winning immunities, mm-hmm. and, or, and maybe Colby sides with Roger and Elizabeth because he liked them. I mean, you know, Colby's a factor because he wins immunities, but I think where Nick sides, does he just side with Roger and Elizabeth and, and possibly Mike, or do, do they go over with Jeff and mm-hmm. Alicia? I think that those two pairs kind of control where the other two go. I actually and, want to follow up on something Paul said a minute ago, that, that Roger, Elizabeth, and... Uh, Mike, we're kind of a trio. That's the same thing I've actually kind of heard as well. In fact, I, this is something that Roger Bingham once told me. I, I kind of had an interview with him about 10 years ago or so, and he was saying basically the same thing, that, yeah, he and, and Elizabeth and Mike were kind of an alliance, and I always kind of thought it was probably some sort of Christian thing, one of these, like, the, the religious three, because those were sure. the three religious people. Sure. And it wouldn't surprise me at all that they were kind of a trio, and then you got Jeff and Alicia off to the side, and then, again, Nick right in the middle is kind of the swing. You know, and if and if they need a member from Ogakor, I mean, if you see what happens, the way it does play out is that Ogakor keeps around, uh, you know, nice, deserving people. Roger Elizabeth at the end. What's to say they don't keep Tina around? I mean, not mm-hmm. not to win the game, but to get them, you know, to get to cut off Jeff and Alicia, just like Ogakor cut off Jerry and Amber. Mm-hmm. I mean, possibilities. Yeah, it's funny if you go on Survivor Sucks or a lot of these sites over the years. The prevailing opinion among most people was well. If Kucha goes in 6-4, then Barner wins because Barner's the most devious and scheming. But I've never thought that. I, I've thought it almost has to come from the Mike-Roger-Elizabeth trio there. And and uh, it could be Mike. Who knows? I mean, it could be Roger. I've heard a lot of people say that Roger was way more scheming and re- way more conniving than we ever saw on TV. So, I mean, it's really what-if questions are really a fruitless battle in Survivor. But this is the one what-if question that I think is really interesting because it could have changed a lot about Survivor history. It really comes down to then if, because you're right, uh, you know, Keith and Tina and Colby, they they like to keep around Roger and Elizabeth. And I think uh-huh. that if they use Ogakor to their advantage, I just see I, the, the deck looks stacked against Jeff and Alicia, and I don't see them making uh, the power struggle within Kucha. Mm-hmm. So then it kind of comes down to once they whittle out all the competition, if Colby rides an immunity ride to the end, that that's a yeah. really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. But it comes down to Mike roger and elizabeth and then whoever wins that final three who takes whom and you know what's kind of happened since then and i i can't sit here and say oh i think definitely this person would win yeah uh, i think if anyone li- lets elizabeth in the end that's just dangerous games right there yeah i agree but roger too roger was just as well loved as elizabeth so it's right so it's, those three it's roger and if, if elizabeth's out it's roger and mike at the end i think mm-hmm. roger probably takes that it could be yeah it depends on how mike rubs off on the ogre cores if they like him or not you have no right. idea exactly we don't 
and again, not to harp on my pro Nick fandom here, but he is a key variable all throughout this. So, I mean, he's the wild card right there in the middle, and I, you have no idea what he would do in that situation. Obviously, he wasn't a part of the storyline, so they edited him really. They under-edited him and took him out of the story for the TV purposes. But if he was important, who knows what kind of a character he would have been? Would have come back in one All Star. Sandra would be an afterthought. Exactly. <laughs> Nick Mania sweeping the country. <laughs> one made kitchen at a time. <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing. I know a lot of people would like to hear us talk about this for like half an hour, but. It's just kind of a fruitless uh, debate because there's no way to know what would have happened, just what we've heard, what people have told us. Obviously, what Roger tells me is different from what Jeff Varner tells Rob Sesternino because everyone's, you know, they've got something at stake, how they come off on how the story is. So, I mean, who knows? Yeah, I, I really quickly, and I don't want to harp too much on this. I, I listen to exit interviews from survivors, mm-hmm. you know, on Rob's podcast and on other podcasts and media and stuff like that. And it's really funny because they all get they all get voted out and they all come out and go, I was really running it out there. <laughs> you just didn't see it. <laughs> and it's like if everyone out there is running it, then everybody is either lying or they don't quite have a clear idea of what's going on. And, you know, we, we at home sometimes may not have a good idea of what's going on because of the story being crafted by the editing and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, it's tough when everyone says, Oh, this would have happened and all this would have happened. And it's tough for people to just even analyze just votes wise and say, well, these two were together and then they would have done this, this, this. It's like, you don't know. It's so emotional. You're in just a total fish tank out there Mm -hmm. and, you know, things could change by the day. So who's, to know if mike stays in then maybe something really dastardly happens and 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 you know things get switched around we just have no idea it's just you're going to tear your hair out if you want to just do that forever yeah it's funny i think i've told this story before but i i used to run like online role-playing games orgs and i ran this game called survivor okinawa once and what was fascinating to me when i watched all the chats come in and all the chat transcripts and interviews and stuff Every single person thinks they're running the game. I never really grasped that until I saw it firsthand from like a producer standpoint when I'm running a simulation. Mm-hmm. Every single person thinks that the story is their storyline and that they're running the game. And it's, it's creepy just to see that only one person's right. So 15 out of the 16 people in the cast are going to come out thinking they got screwed in the editing and that the editing wasn't real. When in fact it was, it was just one person's story that they could tell. You can't tell all 16 people's stories. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And so that's the thing. Varner could be absolutely right that he was going to run the game and work with Jerry, but I don't know if Jerry would say that. I don't know if that's the truth, but clearly that's what he thinks, and it's probably true from his opinion. And as we go through these last post-merge seasons, I think the story of Jerry uh, will come into this as well, the, the, the illusion of power. Anything, any more thoughts on what happens in a what-if scenario, Paul? Elizabeth takes it, and then she um, makes her own talk show that rivals The View and that takes Barbara Walters down. All right, so I think we're in consensus that Nick wins. All right, very <laughs> do you think? Do you think? Do you think? Do you think Tim Hasselbeck becomes the better Hasselbeck quarterback then if Elizabeth wins the game? Yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> if of course, see Paul's thought all the all the permutations just through. The, when he wins Survivor, everything just falls into place after that. Exactly. Doc Brown could give us a whole little flowchart on how history changes correct oh so many timelines you can't go back to the one oh never mind I'm... i think mad dog tannin at that point is the one who pushes mike in the fire it all switches around somehow <laughs> mad dog tannin does he take his teeth out and say i'm ready to push you in <laughs> yes <laughs> all right i think we're, we're off track now <laughs> yes yeah, so anyway that that we've we've talked about the one of the biggest what ifs in survivor history and 
as uh, any great politician would do, we came to no conclusion and are taking no stance on this whatsoever. I approve this message. <laughs> yes. So let's move on. Episode 7, the famous Australian merge. What do you guys remember about this one? Well, I think it's, you know, really funny. It's really kind of the last season um, where where it's like it's laid out so like concretely that the merge is happening this episode mm-hmm. I mean, even from like from the the audience standpoint and from the contestant standpoint like they knew at this day they're merging you know from you know next season i'm sure we'll get to it they kind of throw out there if oh well will the merge happen then or not we had a tribe switch so from, you know from then on out they never say exactly when the merge is so i think that's interesting watching it knowing that they know for sure the merge is coming i'm really sad that you know, as the merge comes, we're going to have an individual immunity necklace and we have to say goodbye to the probably worst immunity idol I've ever seen in my life for the tribe. It had a fucking handle. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> oh my God. The thing had a handle, like, you, you know, a lot of times, you know, at, at the beginning of the season, especially now, uh, whereas certain things budget wise may have gone down in the years that survivor has been on, they certainly seem to do very, very well with their immunity idols and their immunity, uh, uh, necklaces and stuff like that. And I mean, this one, it just looks like a fourth grader made it. It has a handle. It has like two little feathers sticking up. It's like the worst immunity idol ever. Seriously. I feel bad for Australia. It's such a great season. And they have this handle thing. It's like, yeah, get this crap out of here. Let's move on with the game. Tina, Keith and Colby made better idols at the final three. <laughs> Ooh, yes they did fun arts and crafts day and remember to be fair they knew nick would be so lazy he wouldn't pick up the idol so they gave him a handle just to make it a little easier so it was really for nick this idol's heavy it's heavy real bad terry <laughs> but going into this merge i think it's actually really interesting i, I rewatched the scene just a couple of days ago the way they set up this merge you know the first season they had um, these ambassadors that checked out the camp and they had this little romantic thing on the beach and whatnot and you know this season they get they get this tree mail. They think that you know well each tribe thinks the opposite. That one tribe thinks that the guys are going to be uh, mm-hmm. visiting the girls, and the other tribe thinks the girls are going to be visiting the guys. And the way they split it up to have you know guys on one side, girls on one side, it's really an in- interesting dynamic. And what I think is even more interesting is that you know they both are. They first they think they're going to kind of. Cooch is afraid that Ogacore is going to persuade them to come to their camp. What they don't know is that Ogacore is like, I mean, they're pretty ready to jump on it and move to Camp Kucha. And then at the end of the whole thing, they end up going to a new beach altogether, which I understand throughout the course of Survivor, they can't really do that just for, um, you know, whatever location they are. It's not a possibility to always go to a new beach. But I think that's one thing that also makes Australia cool is that they go to a new beach. You know, no one has the, the home field advantage um, once you hit the merge. One thing I'd like to point out about the merge is I remember there were some great quotes in that episode that kind of made it kind of funny. The one with uh, where all the, the, the uh, Ogacores were expecting the girls or something, and Roger says something like, well, I got a surprise for you guys or something like that. And the one about Elizabeth when the guys say, well, we have to woo the females, Elizabeth. And she's like, woo, woo, woo them. I always thought that was kind of funny. And then when they show up and Jeff Farner is uh, pissed off and says, we were ready to pick them flowers and shit. And now we've got to. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. Again, and, Australia, I don't think Australia gets a lot enough credit for kind of being a funny season. But they were some there were some clever lines in that episode. And then the girls moaning session about a food and it turns to. Uh, Tootsie Rolls. Do you guys like the different color or flavors of Tootsie Rolls? Like, like uh, strawberry, vanilla, and then it ends with Jerry going vanilla Tootsie Rolls. 
When did they have vanilla Tootsie Rolls? Like, you realize that they're, they're at a point where they have gone through every food they're craving when you're, like, <laughs> raving and moaning about a vanilla Tootsie Roll. Have they gotten to chewed mints yet? <laughs> no, no spoilers. We'll get there <laughs> soon. Sorry. I, I, I thought that the Kucha women really got the uh, short end of the stick on that with the guys' night out and the girls' night out because the, the Okakor men... Keith, first of all, takes the matches with him uh-huh. so that the women can't light a fire. And then they go over to Kucha and they eat that last chicken they had. And then the Kucha women have to go over to the Ogakor tribe. And Jerry's like, I have fucking tortillas I can make. You know, it's <laughs> it's dough and crap. I mean, you know, we like it. That's all we've eaten forever. Just think all these are just character scenes. I'm just listening to all these little anecdotes and I'm laughing because I remember every single one of them so vividly. And it's just funny, like... None of this was strategy. There had nothing to do with strategy in really any of those scenes. It's just all character scenes and interaction, which which is what I think made Australia really such a rich season. Well, and they threw that curveball, and Paul said it exactly right. You know, the, 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 they switched over to the other camps, and the women are talking, and the men are talking, and there's some really good stuff in there when you mm-hmm. watch the episode about them talking about Mike's accident, mm-hmm. which is a good follow-up and whatnot. But... You know, then Paul's got the great point. Like, you think because all we have is Survivor 1 to go on that they're scouting out the camps. And, you know, us at home are like, God, I hope they're going to land on Kucha. And then they go to an entirely new place, Uh which is to build their what? Is this their 17th shelter of the season, Paul? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think we're on like, well, it all depends if you count the rocks shelter. That really throws throws off the number. All right, and then I guess we do have to eventually get into strategy. And at this point, there's something I always love pointing out because this is something I don't think gets enough credit in Survivor history, which is Colby's plan to draw all the votes towards him at the merge. And this is one of those things that I don't think has, Colby ever gets enough credit for. People just remember him as you know winning challenges. Rosie O'Donnell loved him, and he turns into like a flop later on. But like that was a killer strategy, and it worked. And really, that is why an Ogre wins the game. It's really... Partially because, you know, the the Jeff and Kimmy vote, which we'll talk about in a second. But Colby just intentionally tries to piss off the Kuchas so they'll all vote for him at the merge, which was a brilliant strategy. And again, something he never gets enough credit for. No, and, and, and we have to see here with this episode, we are getting just brilliant gameplay uh, by Colby and Tina, mm-hmm. who, you know, do very well in this game, as we're going to enumerate. And Tina's move we're going to get to later at the immunity challenge. But Colby draws all the votes to him. They mm-hmm. size up Keith as being an outsider. And so they're like, probably Keith has votes. But then you're looking on Ogacore. If you're sitting there saying, okay, Keith has votes, how the hell, like, everybody is graded with Jerry. Jerry is not on anybody's good side out there at all. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Ogacore or that Kucha goes into this merge vote and does not pile their votes onto Jerry, for the life of me, tells I don't understand. And it tells you that Colby did a fantastic job drove, driving all those votes to him. I mean, to, the fact that they thought he had votes over Jerry mm-hmm. is just, that's a, that's a monumental feat. You know, props to him. Yeah, and people like to, you know, shit on Kucha saying, well, they were stupid. They should have voted for Jerry. But like, you know, they weren't stupid people. There's some bright people in that group. And, like, the fact that Colby could sway him, that, that has more to do with Colby. And admittedly, there's probably some acting on Jerry's part, too. Jerry has to let on that she's popular and that she's not annoying people. So she should get some credit for this, too. But, I mean, that's really Colby's plan, and he pulled the whole thing off. And I've always thought he should get more credit for that. Yeah, and it's such a, you know, in the span of 24 seasons of Survivor now, you know, it's such a, there's only those first three seasons. Well, who even knows what happens in the first season? You know, it's such a short time span that, 
the the previous votes came into play and uh-huh. to find you know Ogakor mastering and jumping onto that strategy so quickly and then mm-hmm. we kind of see it repeated in Africa you know they they figured the game out too quickly in that aspect which is why they ended up changing it in fact, I have a, a really good quote here from a reader named Cable Brandon who wrote in, and he's backing up our theory that, you know, Colby should get more credit for this. And he said, basically, Colby's plan to draw the votes to him, this is exactly why Colby is so good. He said, Cable said, Colby risked taking the votes to win the balance of power because he knew he'd win most of the individual immunity idols later, and he had trust in his alliance. I think Colby was the only person who could successfully have taken those votes without putting himself at risk. And again, this is that excellent point that, Colby knows he can take these votes. He can get the tiebreaker votes on him because he's going to probably make an immunity run later against the rest of the Ogre Corps. So he's really the only person who could have done that move and pulled it off and not sabotaged himself. This is probably something, you know, as the game has evolved and as we've gone through our 24 seasons of Survivor, you know, the, the final tribal council, sometimes people's speeches get better, sometimes people's speeches get worse. Uh, Kobe didn't co- didn't didn't really talk about how he drew all the votes to him at the merge and that being very strategic. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, some of the questions will get there, obviously, and I'm jumping ahead. But some of the questions that some of the people who didn't vote for Colby ultimately said was, did you really have to strategize because you won all those immunities? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you would have said, yeah, I drew all your votes at the merge vote like that would have been like, oh, game set match. In exactly. My mind. Yeah. It's the one vote that really counted. And it was all Colby. I mean, there's a little Tina. We'll get to that with the immunity challenge. But I mean, yeah, Colby totally had to strategize he strategized when it, and it meant the most good thing good 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 episode we've got a lot of good character development we have to move over they have to build a shelter and uh, they build it in a good spot if i remember right <laughs> it was perfect what was it like on the top of an active volcano or something <laughs> i just love the way yeah um they edit the the scene you know the the only person they show suggesting um to to go down onto the beach is Jerry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, I'm sure this was a group consensus. You know, it wasn't yeah. just Jerry, but that's all you see is Roger as you know giving his pitch to we need to go up in the hills, get some good anchors, and then a shot to Jerry. Um, I'm just gonna voice my opinion. I think down on the beach. So the whole thing, the whole flood, still Jerry's fault. <laughs> I, Roger has this face that they bring out every once in a while, and yeah. it's where someone's saying something, and you can tell he doesn't agree with it. And it's not yeah. a frown; it's not a this. It's just he kind of has this vacant look, like, huh? And you know, <laughs> it's like when they're going, like, "Hey, let's build down on the beach." You could just see Roger's face, like, "This is not a good idea." <laughs> well, they should they should listen to Roger because Roger used to build homes. Roger helped build the shelter. He knows what he's doing. And then people <laughs> come up to him and start telling him what to do, and Roger's like, "No, that isn't gonna work." Well, Roger even says it, right? He says something like, right now they're building in what's called a dry creek bed, and it's dry now, but I don't know if it's always going to be. Right. And that's just a great bit of foreshadowing, too. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And then we get to the challenge, the, and, and this is the uh, stand on a log in the middle of the, uh, of, the, of the river for a while, right? Oh, yes. This is my, you know, I'm a big Tina fan. Tina was my favorite player for years, and this was the Tina moment that I always loved because... If, t- if, they- if Tina was required to win that challenge, she would still be standing on that log today. <laughs> she was not going to get down ever, and you could just see it in her eyes. And whenever I bring up my Tina is a badass theory, that's the challenge I love to bring up, because Tina was not going to lose that challenge ever. The only reason she lost was because to save Keith for strategic reasons, and again, that's this is why Ogakor wins, because Colby and Tina tag-teamed the Kuchas that episode, and they basically checkmate them so they can't do anything. Just her face, like every time someone like goes in and kind of wave goodbye to him, it gives a shot of a uh, you know Tina's face completely like unfazed. 
Oh, yeah. She wasn't ever moving. And that's the thing. She was like five feet tall. She's, what, 90 pounds. And she's the biggest badass out there. She was never, ever, ever going to leave that thing. I mean, they, they would have had to wait until she died and fell off. And she probably still would have clung on. But that's <laughs> just because she's Tina. Endurance challenges through the years. I mean, we still have long ones even, you know, in later seasons. I mean, God, that one in Palau was like, you know, four days long. But like, uh, seriously, nowadays when they do a, an endurance challenge, they've, they're they on really tiny structures or they're on structures that get smaller over time uh-huh. or they have to balance things on things while they're standing on something. I mean, when you look back at this challenge, look, I don't want to go into the middle of the Australian Outback River and stand on a log for 10 hours. I really don't. Uh-huh. And all props to them. And Tina is the baddest of asses and, and Keith and all those people and Elizabeth and all those people that made it really, really far. But seriously, like if you went to some modern survivor and showed them and said, all right, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to stand on a sequoia stump for 10 hours in the middle of the ocean they'd be like yeah that's easy yeah that was the thing there was no challenge back then it really was just willpower yeah there was no gravity was not going to force them off it was just you're there until you want to come off and i love that aspect of the show back then i just love these long drawn out challenges that are just willpower there's nothing else to it but willpower which i still think my argument is that the final three challenge should always come down to that it should always be who wants it the most but uh what what do i know um i don't want to gloss over the fact that we also have the awesome scene of uh amber licking chocolate off her fingers as she uh dives into the the ice cream cones with hot fudge (laughs) and i I didn't really realize it until i watched it this past time that jerry and amber jump off to get the chocolate we only see amber eat the eat the chocolate Is that the one where Jerry jumps off and Amber follows her just like always? Yeah, they jump right in together yeah. and then it kind of cuts to this kind of oh, oh, <laughs> dun 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 and just shows Amber, you know, licking her fingers. Well, what you didn't see was that Amber was eating the ice cream and Jerry was chasing Colby with him going, come on, get you get your bod over here. So get I can your pour hot, this on. Come on, dude, get your hot bod over here. <laughs> well, there's one thing. If there's one thing we know about that ice cream, oh my God, it was so good. That's what I hear. <laughs> that was the word on the street. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, who don't know what we're talking about, this is the Amber catchphrase. Everyone used to make fun of her on Sucks. I think we talked about this in our podcast earlier that... If you watch Australia and just listen for the number of times Amber says, oh, my God, it's so good. You'll just crack up because it happens so much. She says it all the time. And we (laughs) talked about in the previous episode, Kimmy's legacy, five episodes, four huge moments. Alicia fight, chickens, you know, I can eat a worm, I can eat a worm, and Uh the masturbation thing. Kimmy has all these big moments. And it's like, what is Amber's take from Survivor of the Australian Outback? Oh, my God, it's so good. That's, that's it. And then Meatball Subs, we're now, I think we've made Meatball Subs a thing now, so that's good. Hey, all those years later, I'm so glad we can help out. You know, exactly. that, Amber, that Amber needs something. I mean, I wonder whatever happened to her. Exactly. But, uh, you know, it seems like she would need to catch a break. Exactly. She's no Elizabeth. I mean, Elizabeth went on to become a big star. You never heard from Amber again, so who knows what happened to her. <laughs> I know we're going to get emails. Yes, we know what happened to Amber, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the joke, people. Yes. All right. So, yeah, so that's it. So Tina and Keith are the last two there. Tina gives up immunity, so uh, Keith will be saved. It was a great strategic move. And, again, you can see it absolutely ripped Tina's heart out to have to do that, but she took one for the team, just like Colby. It's in my best interest that Ogacor has the advantage, so I will give up immunity just to save Keith. And, again, this is why they win. This is why Colby and Tina were awesome. This is why I, I can't really handle any criticism, people saying that these two sucked as winners, because right there they won that season. That was that was game, set, match right there. 
Colby drew the votes. Tina gave Keith the immunity because they did catch the vibe that people thought Keith was kind of an outsider. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it was just a, a, a dual move of excellence there. And now, of course, we must talk about the Jeff Varner vote from Kimmy, which is a big subject. So, yes. Um, OK, for those of you who don't know, this is pretty well known in most of Survivor history, but I'll give you the recap version for people who don't know this. Early on in the game, you know, um, Jeff Varner got a vote, the very first tribal council. I think it was the second episode at the waterfall when the Kuchas and the Ogakors were kind of hanging out just before the challenge, and it wasn't caught on camera. But Tina or someone kind of walked over and said, hey, who did Deb vote for on the way out? And Kimmy said, oh, it was Jeff, and which was a big no-no. You don't tell the other tribe who has a vote against them since that was a tiebreaker. So basically, Kimmy outed Jeff. The Yoga Corps knew this. They went into the merge knowing Jeff had a previous vote. All they did was pile their votes on Jeff. And so when it was Jeff against Colby 5-5, the tiebreaker means Jeff Varner goes home. Kucha loses, and it's really all Kimmy's fault. Another reason why Kimmy is a huge part of Survivor of the Australian Outback. Absolutely. She fucked it up for the Kuchas. What was Amber doing this during, during that time? Uh, she was talking about vanilla Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> <laughs> are those so good as well? I've, we, again, word on the street is they are so, so good. Yeah, you know, and, and I guess from a production standpoint here, uh, I know that all three of us here are very, very big uh, early season fans and stuff like that, and, and 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 I totally agree. Something that later seasons do better is the whole vote-looking thing. I'm sure in Africa we're going to talk about it again. But, you know, um, watching people vote in Tribal Council and, and showing the votes come up, you know, sometimes they reveal things uh, uh, more often than they need to and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and the fact that they don't read all the votes at Tribal Council, like when Jeff is... Uh, when they get to the tiebreaker and they re-vote and then, you know, Jeff says, how many votes do you have, Colby? And Colby says, none. And then they say, how many votes do you have? And Jeff says, well, one that I know of. Yeah, I agree. And that was the thing. It's this gets into the bigger question. Like, uh, do you like the past votes tiebreaker? Do you think that was a big deal? And did it cause a production problem? Like you said, that the producers should have shown that Jeff vote just because it becomes important later, but they couldn't do it. It's just, it becomes one of those chicken and the egg arguments. Like, uh, do you really want past votes used as the tiebreaker? Do you think that was a good idea? I mean, it made it made sense. I mean, now you you see all the the complications with it, especially once you start having you know tribe switches, you know, in in, in the next season. But I mean, it makes sense. You know, if if you know the next thing you should go to is a uh, who's already who was almost voted off in previous tribal council. I mean, it made sense. Yeah, I agree. I always liked the tiebreaker. I mean, I can see why a lot of newer fans wouldn't like it because it's it's different and they haven't done it for such a long time. But I like the spirit behind it. If you're if you're thinking that Survivor is purely a social politics game, then yeah, it makes sense. If people didn't like you before, it sh- you should be penalized it for in the future. I mean, because the goal is to get along with people at all times. So I can see the thinking behind it. Uh, yeah, it, you know, in 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 a lot of international, uh, you know, big time, you know, soccer matches, they play soccer for a million minutes, and then if the game's tied, which it often is, then they go to penalty kicks. And hey, penalty kicks are fun and exciting, but it is totally not what just happened for the million years you just watch a soccer game. Yeah. And you know, uh, having deadlocked votes go to, you know, especially when they go to like fire making challenges or 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 quizzes or something like that. I mean, hey, that's all well and good and it breaks the tie and it's this fun uh, moment that you can capture on TV whereas with past votes, uh, we kind of usually know like we knew with Colby and Jeff Varner that Jeff Varner was going to lose the past votes thing mm-hmm. before it came up whereas with the fire making challenge everything's up in the air. But that's not, you know, we're talking about voting people out of the uh, out of the game. What does making fire have have to do with that at all? 
Yeah, I agree. I, I will defend the past votes. I always liked it. It's There was a certain point when you can tell the players kind of figured it out too well, and they could use it to abuse the game and kind of manipulate the system, so they had to change it. But yeah, I love that Australia had the past votes, even though it cost Kucha the game and cost them really one of the greatest storylines of all time, the we're going to win it for Mike storyline. But yeah, I mean, I like that aspect of Australia. Just It makes sense in context of what Survivor is supposed to be. Right. Uh, we'll get to the Purple Rock later in later seasons. Uh, and, and I tell you, I kind of like it, actually. Uh, oh, yeah. That or past votes. Uh, I think that, you know, quizzes or, or fire-making challenges kind of, you know, rankle me a little bit. What about you, Paul? What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, you know, like uh, um, Jay was saying, I think it really, like, captures the spirit of the game, whereas, like, I mean, fire challenges, um, trivia questions, I mean, I see why they, you know, they, they do these different things because there's survival aspects, but I think it should come down to what Survivor is at, at its core, which is a, you know, a social-political game. So, like, I mean, I understand why they've had to change it, but I think it, it best captured what Survivor was or is or is supposed to be pre-Hans. Exactly. Uh, I, exactly. I actually oh, take that back. Russell Hanch to decide every time there's a tie. <laughs> exactly. You know, Australia shows us what Survivor is supposed to be, and that is a game that Kimmy can fuck up for everybody. Exactly. <laughs> if only she bathed more. <laughs> if only. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We've gone almost 45 minutes on one episode. This does not bode well for our timeline here. <laughs> well, I, well, you know, once we get to some of these other episodes, I feel like you can almost kind of lump them together. Like, we don't need to spend, uh, you know, half an hour on the final four episode of Survivor of the Australian Outback. Yeah, that's what they did in real life, so we can just skip that. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so Varner's gone, and the Kuchas are down 5-4, to four, and really, I mean, you hate to say it, but for all intents and purposes, that is the season. That is how Survivor worked back then, but you might as well check out the next four episodes because you know what's going to happen. It's going to be... Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no, yeah, exactly. It's Four Kuchas going down one by one by one by one. Yes. Or so we thought. Although, yeah, there's a couple interesting things in there. One uh, being, of course, the Jerry vote. And we're kind of glossing over an episode here, but I don't remember anything being particularly significant about the Alicia vote off. Other than, is that the one with the boomerang challenge where Jerry wins? Yeah. It's they, the boomerang challenge. They threw some boomerangs around. Mm-hmm. Tina uh, doesn't want to cook because she doesn't like to be judged. <laughs> uh, they celebrate without Jerry and Amber. Jerry and uh-huh. Amber come down to the beach, talk to Colby. Colby lies, but didn't lose any sleep over it because he was lying to Jerry. Um, you know, a lot of it's kind of set up for the next episode, so it really is not that important in the whole thing. Except for one thing I do want to point out here, where I just, like, I love taking, like, a moment in Survivor history, and then you think about, like, like what the the people who are involved in that moment later on. Like, I just mm-hmm. love the vote of Amber voting for Alicia. Um, uh, she draws a little stick figure on there and says, girl, you're strong in the inside out. You know, this is a respect vote. Respect to Alicia. Then you fast forward to All Stars and just think about those two, about how they didn't really like each other. And <laughs> Amber calls her big baby and Alicia pissed at Amber. And you just like how uh, you can uh, look down the line and see what happens. But not that much important in that episode. It's more kind of, you know, aftermath of what happens with Jeff leaving and build up to what's going to happen next episode with Jerry. Although I... Yeah, Two things stick out to me real quick. Uh, one, I think what's really important, and it, it's important not so much for this season, but I think in previous seasons, is that Kucha has lost this merge vote. They are now in the danger of being pagonged, which still happens today. It's the prevailing strategy in Survivor. But, you know, 
you know, we kind of thought at that point, like you just pointed out that once Kucha loses, we said, okay, we can check out. We know that they're all going to go. But Elizabeth has a confessional early in that episode where she says, you know what? That's not a happy family over there. And I'm going to try to crack it. And I'm going to try to get in with some of those people and get myself further in the game. And, you know, she does a little bit and we're going to get into there. Ultimately, it's fruitless. You know, an Ogacor does win the game. But just the fact that someone got on TV and said, you know what? It's not done. It's not over. I'm going to still fight. Uh, and try to, you know, break things up mm-hmm. is important for later seasons. And I will give I will give that. And then second of all, just the immunity challenge. It was literally that, you know, connect the uh, uh, dots to make the boxes. Oh, that one. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's that's got to be one of the worst immunity challenges <laughs> ever. Yeah. The only thing I'd like to point out about that episode is that's the one where we learned that when Amber went to, to lunch with Jerry, all the food was so good. So I do, would like to point that out. That was important. Oh, that's that true. is important. She loves rolls too. She points out too. I, yeah. Oh my god, I love rolls. We oh were my, just I've never talking heard... about rolls. <laughs> I've never heard rolls uh, preceded with "Oh my god" before, so I guess that was a first. That happens in other seasons too. People really freak out over bread when they get to those things. That's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that goes. But you know what I do like is I like watching seasons where people commit huge felonies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, speaking of Colby. Yeah, let's mention that. Go for it, Jay. <laughs> well, this is the next episode. Uh-huh. Uh, episode nine. Alicia has been voted out and uh, we're, we're further on in the game. And then uh, they have uh, the reward challenge. And <laughs> the reward challenge, they they kind of split up into pairs. And I know I know Paul wants to talk about the pair uh, uh, matching here. But, you know, ultimately, the, the pairs, they go through this obstacle course and whoever wins gets flown to the Great Barrier Reef, you know, one of the modern wonders of the world, mm-hmm. and go snorkeling. And Colby and Jerry are paired up together and they go on this fantastic reward. And Colby manages to, you know, ingratiate himself with the tribe. And he takes pieces of coral from the Great Barrier Reef Mm-hmm. Uh, to give back to each tribe member. Yeah, you can't take p- bits <laughs> of the Great Barrier Reef off the Great Barrier Reef. That's a major, major, major no-no. Yeah, I think apparently they cut out the scene where he kills the baby sea turtle and brings that back, too. <laughs> well, that was just delicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. By the way, even though that was a felony, I love that scene where, you know, Colby's presenting the pieces of coral to everybody, and they just cut to Jerry, who realizes, oh, shit, I didn't bring a gift back for everybody. This makes me look horrible. <laughs> and then the, and then That's the one inter- of my favorite moments of the season. <laughs> and, then, like, well, I, I love, I'm glad you brought that scene up, Mario, because he kind of brings it up, like... Okay, so I, I'm getting so excited here because I love the scene. Like the whole that whole trip they go on, like Gary or Jerry is so like giddy the whole time and just like laughs and just trying to be so flirty in this you know, honeymoon without the sex as she calls it. And then Colby's like, uh-huh. "Well, since you couldn't go to the reef, I brought a little bit of the reef back with you." And everyone laughs. And then Jerry <laughs> makes this really loud like ha ha ha, like she knows what he's talking about, but clearly she doesn't know. And then he whips it out yeah. and she has his face on like like crap. And then it cuts her interview of her about how in the dream world, she would be sitting next to Colby in the final two because they are the most evenly matched of anyone remaining. But after this little stunt, he's one up on her. So that's the moment, that's the, that's the, the moment, you know, that uh, uh, Colby has a slight advantage on winning the game from Jerry. I like that you use the phrase Colby whips it out. You know, if I was Jerry, just gonna say, it's just, I'm like, so yeah, he came back to whip it out. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry knew he was going to whip it out at some point, but apparently she misjudged when and how. That's why she, <laughs> so she had the disappointed face. Well, she was one up. And at that point, they were equal on jury votes. Well, in, in the whole, you know, picking the pairs to do the obstacle course at the beginning, you know, because they were like, oh, let's just pick out of a hat. But Jerry didn't like that. <laughs> no, she just wants, you know, everyone to be reminded of the situation they're in. There's nothing fair about it. <laughs> it's about winning. 
Well, who would you pick? Well, I picked Colby. <laughs> well, duh. Who? That, I think that's a Tina line in there too. Well, duh. Who wouldn't? <laughs> well, you know what? Oh, got a little season. I like to be judged. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that was just a great, the, the whole little, and again, this goes back to the thing, did Colby have to strategize? Well, fuck yeah, he strategizes his ass off on that scene right there. That's how you win jury votes and make friends, is you, you do stuff like that. You, you commit a $100,000 fine. You know what, the prize was a million dollars, so he just would have paid it off. That, that, that is true. And of course, my favorite piece of coral is the one for Keith that has a hole to match the hole in his head. <laughs> What is oh, he hey. <laughs> oh, hey. Holds it up to his ear. <laughs> you slammed me. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no one respects me. This is great, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, yeah. The, the, again, we're kind of glossing over the Colby committing a felony here. This was actually a really big deal at the time. This was in all the websites and, like, newspapers wrote about this. Like, is CBS going to get fined for, like, breaking Australian law and letting Colby defile the Great Barrier Reef? But this was all over the place. And, again, this goes back to the thing that the mainstream media really wanted Survivor and reality TV to fail. That, you know, if, if there was one little misstep in Survivor and anything that they did, it was going to be reported all over the media. Like, oh, Survivor's out of control. They're breaking laws. They have to be shut down. And this was all over the place at the time. Like, Colby broke the law. They may have to disqualify him. Big scandal on Survivor. But you know what kind of clout Mark Burnett has? Because I think Mark Burnett's solution to the thing was he apologized. Uh-huh, exactly. And everyone went, oh, well, as long as you're sorry, <laughs> then it's okay. Yeah. He said a little... Go ahead. I was going to say, well, if, you know, good thing Colby did it because if Jerry would have done it, I mean, they <laughs> they would have burnt her at the stake. There's no way Jerry could have gotten out of that without uh, <laughs> some, uh, some jail time. That's true. I forgot about that. So, yeah, Mark Burnett just sent a little gift basket to Lucy Lawless and all was forgiven. <laughs> well, Australia's pride. <laughs> exactly. So we have some fun tug of war games in the immunity challenge. Your boy Nick pulls out a victory. Are we skipping ahead an episode here? No, that's a, that's the same one. Oh, this is the Jerry episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My boy Nick, of course, I'm you know, I'm rooting for him with all my heart. This is, you know, again, I I had ties to Nick in real life. I talked to him. It was a big deal that I knew someone on the show and yeah, he was, you know, he was uh, slated for rejection that night. He comes through and wins a really exciting immunity challenge, or maybe that was just me since I cared about Nick. But I always liked that one. He kind of beats Colby in the end, and then he's like, yeah, Nick saved. And then the fall of our friend, Miss Jerry Manthe. Right, and I love, I just love kind of the hints throughout this episode. You know, we have the thing in the beginning with the whole scene with Jerry, you know, just wanting to remind everyone about how there's nothing fair about the game they're playing. And then even in this challenge, they have a couple things there, like uh, when Jerry asks, how does she hold the rope? And Colby's like, put it around your neck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I actually have a, uh, I got to jump in. We have a, a reader feedback exactly about that quote. This guy named Ryan Oakley wrote in and said, uh, uh, Mario, on the next Historian's podcast, there's another classic Colby liner you have to mention. At the Final Eight Immunity Challenge, you tell Jerry, put the rope around your neck, and everyone just laughs innocently, and Liz playfully el elbows him in the chest. And Ryan goes, it's just so bloody bizarre. Colby's joking about her killing herself, and everyone just chuckles and says, oh, Colby, you jokester. <laughs> Even Elizabeth's like, oh, elbow Colby. Exactly, yeah. Why don't you just pound her senseless? You said what? <laughs> you, what? Oh, it's Jerry, okay. Yeah, and, then, uh, and then Jerry has some comeback about, like, uh, we know how he treats women. Yeah, and then Colby actually does treat her that way in the challenge. If you remember, he, like, throws her onto her back. Oh, yeah, he's just dragging her around. Yeah, you know, Colby. Do it again. Colby, the all-American hero, throwing Jerry face first or back first onto the ground. 
Well, it's <laughs> yeah, it's Jerry, so we don't care. No, you jokester. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and going into this Jerry vote, I I can distinctly remember. You know, this time when I was watching Survivor, just to recap everyone, I was a fifth grader, and I remember I I was so into the season, I remember just, like, shaking every tribal council, even if I didn't really, like, even if it was Ogakor going to tribal council, I was a big Kucha fan, and mm-hmm. I was the biggest Elizabeth fan forever, and I was, I mean, 100% convinced Elizabeth was going, and even back then, mm-hmm. I feel like I kind of usually had a grasp on what was going on, and you kind of knew what was going to happen, and mm-hmm. because I don't think people realized that it was never, it was unprecedented that the the alliance or the tribe and the majority would vote off someone before them. Mm-hmm. And what's actually kind of funny about it is they show a, uh, an interview from Keith in the preview from the episode before, which doesn't make the actual episode, but Keith says, uh, we are going to sacrifice one of our own members. <laughs> or I think he even says one of our own Okakor members. That doesn't make the show. But I mean, I was convinced it was Elizabeth going. I remember even thinking Elizabeth was going to be on the early show the next day. I was going to try to submit an email so that they would read it. <laughs> and um, I mean, it, it is for sure was happened like i i know watching it i thought it was written in stone that elizabeth was going to be the second member of the jury yeah i mean that was the thing and that jerry vote just kind of comes out of nowhere and i don't it think does. it's it's possible it's not really possible to emphasize what a big deal this was at the time because a villains didn't get voted out of the show back then i mean you remember richard won the first season everyone hated him he was the big villain jerry was an even bigger villain the second season and there had just never been a moment when a villain was voted out of Survivor before, let alone one in the majority alliance after the merge. And this was just unprecedented. And it was just the vote that really sent shockwaves through Survivor at that time. And there's even yeah. the this, this scene in the tent where they're arguing about it. Where, you know, Keith's like, well, you know, maybe we should get rid of uh, Jerry. And then Colby's like, no, no, no. Like, it's stupid. We'll get rid of her later. So, I mean, all indications point to Jerry staying. Yeah, and that's really the only thing. Uh, Jerry, I mean, yeah, Richard was hated, but we talked about how Richard was hated, but he wasn't, like, totally hated. Yeah. You know, it was it was there. Borneo was great. It was a great start. We have great characters. But Australia, we get our very first bona fide hero and our very first bona fide villain mm-hmm. in Colby and Jerry. And, you know, with Jerry, we get this big villain, and a lot of times, you know, and, and more modern Survivor, and even just in a few seasons coming up, you know, people who are – more villains get this, you know, great downfall, this delicious voting out. And with Jerry, I mean, even though it was really great that she got voted out and I mean, America cheered, I cheered, everyone just went, yeah, I can't believe they did it. You know, other than a little bit of foreshadowing, which is Jerry, you know, trying to rule the roost. I mean, it was just that conversation in the tent where Keith's like, well, we have another option. We could vote Jerry out. And then they go to tribal <laughs> council and Jerry gets voted out. And you're like, what, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. That was just one of those. I mean, you could hear the cheering. It was one of those when that happened, because there was no foreshadowing. No one thought that was going to happen. You, like, if you followed Survivor on the Internet, if you read the message boards, like, you couldn't, it, you could not have logged onto the Internet fast enough because you wanted to see the reaction to what happened after Jerry gets voted out because you knew it was going to be awesome. That's right. huge. <laughs> this reminds me of the story I wanted to share on the early show the next morning. I mean, this is, uh, I, I want to talk about this when we get down to the final five about, you know, really, it gives you a picture of what it was like technology-wise in the year 2000 because mm-hmm. they read emails. They printed out emails and they read email submissions to the <laughs> survivors voted off. And I remember the the anchor, it was Russ Mitchell, who's filling in for Bryant Gumbel uh, on the day that Jerry got voted out. And he, like, read this email to Jerry about this mother who wrote in about her 8-year-old child who was watching the show. And when Jerry got voted out... He cried a tear of joy that she was gone. And how do you react to that, Jerry? 
<laughs> my son was in a wheelchair when you were voted out. He stood up and he walked. <laughs> and he did a little dance. <laughs> what was Jerry's reaction? Do you remember? She was like, I, uh, I, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but she says something about how well she would maybe take that that more a little more seriously if she hadn't felt that the parent had some like manipulation in that email or something, <laughs> or if the parent had a had kind of skewed the the story there. She didn't really buy it. <laughs> I, be, I remember. I bet Jerry's face was very similar to the face when Colby handed out the coral and she didn't have any. Similar. So she's like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. she's like, ha. he's like, we got email here for you. She's like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. The other funny thing about Jerry, and this is my epitaph to Jerry uh, in in Survivor, the Australian Outback, is that she was the biggest villain, you know, to date, and she's going to even be the biggest villain for a while in Survivor. And here she is; she loses the majority uh, in Ogacor. You know, she has her three, but then Mitchell gets voted out, so it's Keith, Colby, Tina, and then it's her and Amber. So she's not even in the majority in Ogacor. And then she gets to the merge, and Ogacor gets the advantage, and then they vote her right out. At no point. Really, in most of this game, was she ever in some real big power position? And yet, she's the biggest villain we've ever had, and that just seems really bizarre to me in well, a lot of but ways. She was one step behind Colby from winning the whole thing. You forget <laughs> exactly. that, Jay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What, and, what can I do? And, and then she had those final words, and this is where I kind of felt a little bad for Jerry, where she really doesn't know why she got voted out. She thinks it was the fairness comment. Like she doesn't seem to have any re- any concept or recollection that people just didn't like her. And so I kind of felt bad for her at that point, like, oh, man, she's probably been watching these episodes. She had no clue she was going to be hated as much as she was. So I, even though, you know, she was a great villain, it was fun to make fun of her on the message boards. Like, I remember hearing those final words, yeah, I'll buy you guys a beer. I'm not sure why I got voted out. Like, she really got blindsided. Yeah. And, <clears> and I know, her, what, what are her final words as she walks out? Checkmate. You guys got me. Yeah, I mean, and then, and then, we, and then we get an amber uh, face plant. <laughs> oh, my God, it was so bad. Yeah, there's a, we got a lot of reader questions said, talk about Jerry and how it, uh, the concept of a villain has changed over the years. And I want to do that at the end of the podcast. That's a big topic. I don't want to get into that yet. But we'll come back to that, what it meant to be a villain then versus now, and how really Jerry isn't a villain by normal standards, by modern standards. Right. Um, but we can move on to the next episode, which, I mean, people say post-merge in Australia is boring, but we've had Jerry get voted off. Uh, you know, we've had... Uh, all this sort of fun stuff going on. And then we get to the next episode where we have our survivor auction. Absolutely. This is a fun one, right? The birth of the survivor auction. I just want to kind of, um, preface this uh, series of episodes. We're going to talk about here with, um, the fact that I think Australia is so important what they do in, in these episodes here. And it's not something that I think really should be repeated since then, because you can't do this 24 times. But what I think we see with these last, you know, four or five episodes of Australia is really what it what it's like to be a survivor out there. If you sit down and watch those episodes, I mean, they cover every aspect of of survival: the hunger aspect, mm-hmm. the the water aspect, the mm-hmm. shelter aspect, this flood. Um, you know, they talk about how much weight they lose, losing hair. I mean, you really, if if you really sit down and watch that, and you really pay attention, you really like get a sense what it's like to be on Survivor. And I think that's a same experience that's felt, you know, I mean, pretty much on on any Survivor there's ever been. And obviously, they're not gonna, you know, focus the season around that anymore because people are gonna get bored of it. But I think it's really important that you have that we have that that footage and that the way it's put together to really get what it's like to have a group of people out there who are just hanging on by a thread. And so that that's what I think um, 
um, these episodes are important. And uh, a, a good way that they combated, you know, how hard it was out there was to do the Survivor auction, which obviously uh, they don't do every season, but it still lasted uh, even up until season 24. So uh, I remember when it came out, it was like really fun. And, and even for a long time, that was you know one of my favorite scenes from Survivor Australia, because you know, for such a heavy season and with all the heavy stuff that's about to happen, it's fun. You know, it's fun to see people eat food. It's fun to see how ridiculous, uh, you know, amounts are going to pay for the things. And, and if you look at the auction back then, it was way more pathetic than the auction now. I think what, what were those like four four chips with some salsa was one of the items. Or six <laughs> yeah. French fries and some ranch. Like, yeah. I mean, really meager stuff. And more stuff, but you know, Nick took those. You know, Nick bought the Doritos and salsa for like a hundred bucks, and then you know there was like a couple crackers and he bought them, and then there was you know he got uh, beer and with a little side of like almost looked like pork rinds or onion ring kind of uh, mm-hmm. type things, and it's like no one bid on those things because they were little, and Nick kind of cleaned up on those little things. Way to go, Nick! Again, this points out why Nick is the greatest player of all time. Well, they do cut out. <laughs> well, they do cut out supposedly that Nick did buy uh, steak and egg dinner. But uh, they cut that out, which it makes sense because uh, Nick has a great line post-auction where he says he's going to go take a bath because he doesn't want the whole camp to smell like ass by the end of the night. (laughs) And, uh, you know, if you think back what what we saw him eat, we saw him eat four chips, four crackers, a Bud Light, and an onion ring. Like, really, did it wreak that much (laughs) havoc on your uh, digestive system, Nick? Are you that? Is your your digestive system that lazy that it it can't process (laughs) that much food? But but just so everyone out there knows that he did eat some steak and eggs, which is uh, why he had so many problems afterwards well one of the i think magical moments about that scene is you got to see roger bing and bingham talk about shitting himself so that was nice <laughs> my leaf had a hole in it kid. yeah exactly <laughs> like, do i did i just hear roger make it a shit joke <laughs> he sure did <laughs> well it was, yeah it was interesting you know and the, and, the, and and the other thing the last thing i'll say about the auction is you know elizabeth starts the trend of you know young women trying to win the peanut butter and chocolate of the of the auction that usually seems to be the the preference thing of young women of choice but then you know the 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 plate of the the turkey dinner with the mashed potatoes and and vegetables you know elizabeth wants that and then you know she says uh, i'll split it with some people and like you see amber turn around and start to t- talk to elizabeth like i'll split it with you but tina cuts her off <laughs> cuts her the fuck right off and it's like no you me blah 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 blah. and you know elizabeth wins it and she and tina split it and i'm like poor amber she just got railroaded by tina <laughs> and then we get uh you know amber is the first victim of the the dud item at the auction when she buys the the tall glass of water and it's perfect how they do it because as she's bidding for it it kind of cuts to shots of like uh everyone shoving their face and amber you know kind of looking looking up and you know she's thinking oh my god that looks so good and then she gets some water (laughs) i love amber you know amber gets crapped on a lot i I probably don't like her for the right reason but man she was entertaining in an unintentional way Mm -hmm. (laughs) well yeah and then and then we have that fun scene i think paul made a very excellent point these seasons or these episodes of survivor really take you into kind of the behind the scenes of what it's like to be out there and you know after that challenge like in all challenges when you are starving and have no food and then you get a a bunch of food you know it immediately just goes through you so fast and you have to go crap your pants and throw up and do all that other fun stuff and (laughs) they're all running around and you know colby got you know a iced coffee and a protein bar which was totally great and amber got you know a couple french fries and you know the the dud item of the day they were do just too. She did the do. She did the do. Do the do, baby. So, you know, they they were just fine, and everyone else was not. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny how you say the the uh 
the second half, the last couple episodes of Australia show the uh, difficulties of Survivor from a player standpoint. One thing I wanted to bring up here, this is kind of going on a complete sidetrack, but I don't think a lot of people know about this, is what it, what happens in the second half of Australia from a fan perspective, at least on the message boards, is you could see the difficulties of, of, of uh, portraying a Pagongi from a production standpoint and how you can show it and still keep the audience interested. And one of the things, like Elizabeth says, we're going to turn the tables, blah, blah, blah. You'll see a lot of that the second half of Australia, right after, you know, Varner goes home, because the producers are desperately trying to make you think that something interesting is going to happen and, like, some some, some crazy vote's going to happen. And the Jerry vote, of course, breaks up the monotony, but it's still a pagonging. And, and, and one thing I don't think a lot of people know is there were rumors all over the message boards back then that, oh, the Ogacores are going to fall apart, the Ogacores are going to fall apart, there's a spy, there's a Kucha spy who's going to turn on the Kuchas. And I remember this very vividly because... If you just thought the Ogacores were going to run the gamut all the way to the end, no one would have watched. And there was a lot going on behind the scenes that the producers were doing or someone was leaking info or leaking fake spoilers. There was a lot going on to try to get the fans stay interested, like something, there might be a game changer down the road, even though everyone and their mother knew no way there was going to be a game changer. But the producers were really trying their best through the episodes to make you think the Ogacores might fall apart. Right, and even if you look back at the early episodes, and I think it's also uh, reminiscent of the first season, is the way they edit an episode. Now, you know, now when we watch a se- an episode of Survivor in the, the modern ages, you know, you might get like a little snippet at camp, and it's challenge, boom, challenge, boom, and then you have about like ten minutes usually mm-hmm. before tribal council where that's all strategy talk. So, and in a modern Survivor, when you get a pagonging, it is super obvious. You know what's going to happen because yep. they have ten minutes to fill that. You know, you know if it's something's good going to happen because they have ten minutes of good strategy they cram in there, or they have ten minutes of trying to fake you out. Whereas back then, you know, it kind of was you got so much meat before you even got to the immunity challenge that after the immunity challenge, you were lucky if you got two minutes back at camp, and it kind of the immunity challenge was just kind of you know. Which is kind of what led you up into tribal council, so you didn't have a uh, you know ten minutes of a uh, of them talking about there about, well we are going to vote them off one by one, but maybe blah 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 because you just didn't know because it, it didn't spend that much time going on to it. You still were kind of coming mm-hmm. off this immunity challenge. You know they talked about it earlier on, and they didn't lay it out as 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 they do now. Yep, I remember one rumor that was really prevalent on the message boards during that time was that there was a Kucha spy. This was being leaked all over the place. This is right around the Jerry episode. It might have been before the Jerry episode or right after the Jerry episode. I forget where. It was all over the message boards, and there was this rumor, oh, there's a Kucha spy. One of the Kuchas is working with the Ogacores. He's going to sell out He's going to sell out the rest of the Kuchas, and then he's going to do well at the end. And it's basically, that's they're justifying all the Kucha love pre-merge. They're like, look, a Kucha's still going to win. It's just not the person you expect. And I remember this all over the message boards. And the prevailing opinion was that it was probably going to be Nick, which sounds you know comical now that Nick was going to be a major character. But this was kind of like this fake spoiler going around the message boards at the time. Oh, Nick is Nick is sly. He's going to sell out the Kuchas and he's going to get it to the he's going to get to the end, and the Kucha's still going to win. And so it was really interesting, you know, with my connection to Nick, I had a lot of you know at stake that he's going to do well. And of course, it ended up being not true whatsoever. There was no Kucha spy. It was just complete BS. And I, it was probably something that was leaked by the producers to kind of keep the fans interested. But it was just one of those things I always remember with the second half of Australia, that there was all these these crazy stories going around behind the scenes. Oh, I heard Akucha does this. I heard the Ogacores fall apart. And to this day, I still swear the producers must have leaked some of that to try to get people interested. 
Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so absolutely. You're just, you're just trying to drive up ratings. Yeah, that's what I would do. And of course, it's funny you watch Australia now, complete pagonging. You got the Jerry distraction, but otherwise, it's very obvious what's going to happen right, right at the minute Werner gets voted out. But it's funny that at the time, it was not boring. People say oh, Australia is so boring, but it wasn't boring at the time because there were so many red herrings, distractions, fake rumors, fake spoilers going on that whoever was throwing that information out did a really great job because. Again, Australia was not boring when you were watching it. And that's something I always like pointing out. At the time, if you lived through it, it was a whole different experience. You weren't bored, and, and there were those rumors, and you thought maybe the game would shake up, and then you had all this really, uh, you know, witty stuff happening mm -hmm. on TV. I mean, this Survivor auction, and Nick goes home tonight, but in between the Survivor auction and Nick going home is uh, when Jeff Probst goes to their camp and offers them more rice. Uh, mm -hmm. for the trade. I mean, Jeff Probst comes out and says, you guys are going to die mm -hmm. and I need to give you rice and fish hooks because your turtles keep eating your fish hooks. Yep. That, must, know, and, that must be why the area was fished out. So Mitchell was right because the turtles were eating all the fish too. It was, it was those damn turtles. Those turtles. I mean, those Australian turtles, they're, they're bigger than Lucy Lawless. <laughs> well, they do spell it out. I mean, they do say at some point there, you know, there's massive storms and whatnot coming through and, you know, because of that, the river kind of got stirred up and cloudy and you know because of that you know fish are less likely to see and bite hooks and mm -hmm. then turtles are coming out more like they spell it all out for you and it really sucks because then they couldn't get the you know you're like well they're fishing earlier but it's like a they're going down on strength they're going down on manpower mm -hmm. to do all of their daily chores and then you know this thing happens in the environment and you know then they're just eating rice and then they're eating less and less and then they have none and then jeff Kropes comes and gives them more and they have to take the tarp and the texas flags so then they have to build another shelter in yep. the dry creek bed absolutely and yeah, then that, nick goes home then the next way well, yeah, i can't talk about the nick one it's too heartbreaking <laughs> no it was one of the it was one <laughs> Oh, well, uh, what happened? Yeah, there's there's a big story behind my whole Nick thing. I, I don't want to get into it. I'm writing an essay for my website called uh, My Experiences with Survivor. I'll write a lot about this. I don't want to clog up the podcast because it's kind of just gossipy stuff. But yeah, what happened is I had a whole interview with Nick set up. And the website that I was writing for, which was Television Without Pity, said, well, we're not comfortable with you doing the interview because, you know, we have staff writers. So, you know, thanks for hooking us up with Nick, but we're going to do it now. So fuck off. And so basically... I was so pissed about that, I decided I wanted to become a writer for another website and drive television without pity out of business just because of that. So it is really all thanks to Nick, and my, my Nick interview never did happen. So it was a sad day. It was, it was the opposite of the Jerry day with the little boy walking out of the wheelchair. <laughs> well, I, uh, uh, this tribal council also gives a, a great moment for another great uh, voting confessional by Tina. So here's your ticket, buddy. Yeah, that was great. You know, that's the thing. I love Nick, but, you know, Tina sent him off perfectly with a perfectly timed uh, moment of badassery. So uh, you got to tip your cap at that point. Good job, Tina. And uh, Keith walks away with another vote because uh, he didn't bring his bag, and that's just flat-out arrogance. It's just flat-out arrogant. He doesn't bring his bag. Yeah, so that's... I hate to say that's really the end of Nick's legacy, but that is the end of Nick's legacy, and he he came into town, affected nobody, and left. Hey, you know, that, that takes skill in and of itself, <laughs> right? You know, just... Just a seamless, a seamless entry and exit into Survivor. Exactly. You know, he's forgettable pretty bad, Terry. So, yeah, so then, then we have the, yeah, again, the, something you brought up was the big weighty subjects here, the people losing their food, the flood. And, again, uh, like a modern Survivor fan would say, that's so boring to watch. It doesn't mean anything. It has no effect on the game. But, like, that was kind of riveting TV at the time. And I, 
I hate to say again, you had to be there to appreciate it, but you really had to be there to appreciate that because that was there was some really hardcore stuff going on in Survivor. Like these guys were really fucked up. There was a lot of like life and death stuff going on that had nothing to do with Survivor and kind of made the game fade into the background. And no other season has ever been anything like that. It was. I still think Australia is fascinating because of the stuff that's different. That flood scene's incredible. Just the whole way it's shot. The fact that the cameraman's there, you see the yeah. water coming, and then it comes and it just wipes out the camp. But I mean, you know, you're looking at this thing going, oh my God. How did the cameraman capture that shot? Did they know the water was coming? Did they say, quick, it's coming, it's coming down this creek, get that camera ready and just wait? I mean, that was perfectly timed that he sees it just trickling in like, you know, syrup flowing over your pancake in the morning. And it's great because it's pretty rough footage. Like, you can tell they just have one guy there. Like, the there's a lot of, like, uh, you know, water on the camera. It's really kind of shaky and stuff. So, uh, uh, thank God they got that moment. Yeah, and then you got the whole scene where just everything gets destroyed. They come back. They're just devastated. Amber, I think, drops about 500, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my gods. And then you get, you know, an, an, you know example number 72 of Tina being a badass. The, the t- moment she, in the pitch dark, decides to swim across the raging river with crocodiles in it to go get their rice. Tina. Yeah, which, again, I mean, people say, oh, Australia's boring. But, like, yeah, show me another season where someone has to go retrieve their rice or they're all going to die. And, you know, in the meanwhile, you have Colby on this, you know, fascinating reward, which, I mean, now, rewards and Survivor are pretty much a joke. I mean, they're all the same. They take them to a waterfall, they eat a picnic, and they talk about how much they love their Sprint phone. I mean, this is an example of, of a great Survivor reward. Colby went off. He didn't get to pick seven people to go with him. He went by himself, and uh-huh. he rode on this horse. He's fighting the storm, and, and, you know, you get him shoving his face and singing with these Australian cowboys around the fire, you know, juxtapose that to uh, to what's happening back at the Bear Monday camp as they uh, try to build the shelter number 78. <laughs> Although I, I have to say, you know, anyone that sits here and says, you know, there's manipulation behind the scenes and stuff like that. Colby winning the cowboy challenge where you have to ride a horse for fricking ever and hang out with cowboys. And then the fact, you know, you throw in the fact that there was the huge storm and they have to ride horses through a storm through like Creek beds and stuff like that. Like uh, really, if Tina wins that challenge, what is that scene like? <laughs> That's a good point. Never thought about that. No, but it was great. He won it, and he got to hang out and have beans and beef stew and, and you know, eggs and bacon in the morning. But I tell you, you know, and it, it goes back to the heroness of Colby, and I don't necessarily think this is a work for the cameras, but, you know, those people really did bond over extreme situations then. I mean, he comes back and sees what happened and goes up there. I mean, he's crushed, too, and he didn't really go through the initial shock like everyone else did. Yeah, he just comes back and he's like the comforter. He's the one hugging Amber and, you know, comforting everyone. So he's, it's like he takes on a completely different role that has nothing to do with the game at that point. He's just the one person who still has sanity left because he wasn't there when the flood happened. Mm-hmm. Yep, and because of that flood, though, and because of Colby's role and whatnot, we get to the immunity. And, and poor Amber, they, they, they deviate and photo out Amber this episode, and it, it gets very little fanfare because and especially because she's the greatest of all time <laughs> exactly i mean that's the thing you it's the the time that you see the greatest player ever in survivor history voted out like your brain just can't comprehend it so that's why i think people just i'm i can't even finish that thought it's, it's super ridiculous. super surreal <laughs> exactly. um, okay the question that i um always been unanswered to me i don't know if you guys have heard anything is so what was the deal with Colby in that vote? Because Colby still votes with Amber for Roger. I'm assuming that Colby knows what's going on, but just can't vote for Amber. Do you guys have any insight on how that breaks you know, down as far yeah. as what Colby's role was in Amber leaving? Yeah, the, the way that I look at that and the way I've heard it discussed before is that 
Colby knows he's going to be in the final two. I mean, it's almost a certainty at that point. And he's basically going for jury votes, where he's really politicking better than Tina is at that point. He's made Amber a promise, I'll never vote for you, because you know, it was Colby, Amber, Jerry at a certain point. Colby screwed over Jerry. He doesn't want to screw over Amber. And so he's doing everything he can to not be a part of that blind side, even though he knows it's coming. So I think that's just him politicking. What a horrible player, Colby. What a joke. I know. He strategized. No strategy whatsoever. He just won immunities. It's really good that that's the reason because, you know, when we get to the final two and Colby and Tina are like, we were together all along. It's like, you were? Really? You voted out Amber together? Yeah, that's the thing I think a lot of people don't remember or don't re recognize that it was never really mentioned at any point during Australia that Colby and Tina were that close or that they were a team until kind of the very end. Right. And if, if they had really shown that, like people say, oh, no, Australia wasn't a pagonging because Jerry and Amber got voted out. I'm like, yeah, it was a pagonging. It was just it was a three person alliance running the show, not a five person alliance. And if you want to get technical, it was two person alliance because it was Colby and Tina and then everybody else. Yeah. But if they had shown that, if they had shown like Colby and Tina at the merge saying, hey, let's team up. It'll just be the two of us. We'll run the show. The season would have made a lot more sense as it was. You're kind of blindsided by a viewer as a viewer. By the fact, oh, Colby and Tina were like mother and son all along, and we just didn't mention that. And that's one of those things where the, the editors probably should have showed that at a certain point, but they never did. So it's kind of unfulfilling if you don't know that. Yep, absolutely. But moving yeah. right along, uh, Amber's voted out, and mm -hmm. we're left with uh, we're left with our final five, right? And uh, we get to, and, and this may not be the best episode of the season. We've talked about some really heavy, weighty, awesome episodes, especially pre-merge and you know the flood and all that sort of stuff. But I love the next episode, maybe because I just love the Survivor Internet Cafe scene. Oh, yes. So much going on in that scene. Some of it's touching. Some of it's funny. Some of it's unintentionally funny. Some of it is mother-son incest. There's a lot of fun stuff going on. Let's, let's discuss this one. Well, first, I just, you know, like I said, timestamp on the late 2000 when they, uh, thanks to technology, you're going to be able to communicate with your loved ones uh -huh. halfway across the globe. And then, you know, they're like kind of typing and there's kind of like a delay for like the, you know, the, the chat to, to get to, to the side of the world. Yeah. The instant, yeah, message. instant messenger. Yeah. yeah. At one point, if you look closely, someone asks Tina, age, sex, location? Yeah. ASL? <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and, and then they get the, you know, the fun glamour shot, you know, because Tina gets up and, you know, you got your your husband and, and kids, you know, they're all staying around with like Nashville Predators jerseys and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, Tina just writes like, hi, guys, I'm great. Love you. And they're like, oh, look, your mom typed that. <laughs> Technology. Look, Internet. And, and then, then they uh, type back like, hey, things are good. <laughs> and then you get uh, Elizabeth chatting with Elizabeth Ken and Ken. Yeah, oh, my God, that's the funniest thing ever. Yeah, make sure you mention that for people who don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, well, they, the, they introduce uh, Elizabeth's family, who she, they're chatting with, and Elizabeth is chatting with her mom, Elizabeth. Her dad, I think the way they phrase it is her dad, Kenneth, and her brother, mm -hmm. Ken. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Ken, and Ken. <laughs> that is, like, the coolest thing ever. It's like, hey, Elizabeth and Ken are married. Oh, let's have a child. It's a girl. <laughs> Which, sidetrack oh, it... <laughs> Which I think Elizabeth, uh, you know, it's a good name, right? <laughs> well, sidetrack. Elizabeth shares the story of the view one time about how there was this kind of creepy sexual predator coming on to her and was calling her and stuff when she was younger. And he called the house one time and asked for Elizabeth. His mom, her mom, answers the phone. This is Elizabeth. Finds out who it was and they get rid of the guy and I'd never have to deal with him again. So uh, think about that when you're naming uh, your kid. And Elizabeth is such a ditto head. They even name the kids the same as the parents. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just prefer to the call time her. is eight forty nine. I just uh, prefer to call her Bessie. Uh, thank you for not calling her Liz. L I S. Liz. So we got Liz with Ken, Kenneth, and Kenny, and Elizabeth, and and all that sort of stuff. And then we get you know, and then uh, and we get to Keith, Keith, right? Peas and carrots. Peas and carrots. Call her Sweet it, Pea, though. He proposes. He proposes. You know, and and mm-hmm. it, what's funny is that you know. It's really great because I think it's a really genuine, authentic moment, and a lot of that doesn't doesn't really smell authentic. But you know, he types in the whole "I'm looking at the stars" and this that, and it's uh-huh. you know really dumb stuff. And will you marry me? And then you know he sends it, and his and his you know girlfriend on the other end's like, "What are you for real? Yeah, <laughs> you serious? Are, are you a Nigerian prince? What's going on?" <laughs> Although I think all of us were thinking the same thing at that moment. Wow, his girlfriend's way too cute for him. How how old is she? I know she was way younger than him. Yeah, oh yeah. And then, you know, he types like, yes, and it's yes, and it's this really funny scene, but, you know, it's Keith, so it's just kind of awkward. Exactly. He's the one character not only does nobody give a shit about, but really his only persona is, oh, he was kind of the, the villain who was a little conceited. So, like, it really doesn't match the character that he's going to get the touching, heartwarming, you know, uh, marriage proposal home scene. It's just kind of out of place. And then, and, you know, and, and, and we have this really awkward scene. You know, we have, we have Elizabeth with Ken, Kenneth, Kenneth, Elizabeth, and that's awkward. And then we yeah. have Keith with his awkward proposal. And we're like, my God, this is just awkward gold. And yeah. we're like, it can't get any more awkward. Can it? Oh, yeah. And then comes, and then we bring in incest. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're going to get in a lot of trouble for this. But, you know, what happens next is, you know, Colby with his mom and, you know, uh, what does she write? She just writes, hi, baby, just one word, H-I-B-A-B-Y. What? That's yeah, you see her typing writes. for, for a kind of a while. It takes her like a minute and a half to write that. I'm like, do fucking space bars work differently in Texas? <laughs> but yeah, then she writes, you know, they're all, you know, touching and close and stuff. And then we find out later that they're real close, but we'll get to that later. But yeah, it's, it's Colby's relationship with his mom is alternately, you know, charming and ridiculously cute and awesome or just creepy, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Uh, well, I think this is a good lead-in because you know we do have our immunity challenge. It's it's another one of those. Jeff tells a story. They have to go get the the stuff, and Colby wins. And this is a theme in post-merge. Colby wins. Colby wins quite a bit. Absolutely. And then uh, they get out, and then and then it's voting out Roger. And I mean, I'm trying to skip ahead here because you know we're trying to trying to move through this. But uh, you know, it was the scene. I like the scene where Tina was talking with Roger, just saying, "Well, it's either you or Elizabeth." Mm-hmm. And, and he basically throws himself on his sword. He gives himself up for her, basically. He's like, I'm actually super rich. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> One scene I want to throw in here but before we move on to the next episode is uh, we get the big uh, Keith versus uh, Colby scene here, and we uh, realize that uh, Colby can't stand Keith. The guy's a bozo. Mm-hmm. Oh, with the with the with the brown rice yields less right. and, the, and the water. Right. Oh yeah. Right, and Colby just does not let that go. He's like, no, you didn't, Keith. You said that. You said it twice in a row. You said it twice in a row, and uh, um, you know Keith is worried because Elizabeth's right there chiming in and whatnot. So um, you know, leading up to tribal council, you you kind of you know wonder what's going to happen. And even you know, Liz, or Colby admits it later on. I think at the final two that during that vote, they thought of every possible way to get rid of Keith rather than <laughs> Roger. Yeah, Keith. You know, the guy who just had the touching marriage proposal scene that we're all supposed to love now. Good storytelling. <laughs> Well, Colby says something about uh, how uh, he, like, views everything Keith does as, like, a calculated move or something, whether it's... I can't remember what the first thing he says is. He goes, or proposing to his girlfriend online. (laughs) 
Yeah, Colby of the of the trying to sway the jury. Oh, Keith is so calculating. <laughs> By the way, one thing I got to mention, we're gonna I'm gonna jump back a little bit here, but if you think that Survivor Internet Cafe scene is awkward, you know, it it gets worse when you realize that in real life Tina and her husband are divorced now. So you watch that scene where, you know, she's loving her new husband. Oh, I gushes. I love Dale. I love, and then, oh, by the way, in real life, they're not, they're not together anymore. So that makes that scene even particularly more awkward to watch. Yeah, those are, the, those are the, the family details, like personal life details that you like, don't want to know about. Because it just ruins scenes like that. <laughs> I know, it's horrible. About how she talks about she's like, she's still kind of a newlywed. And she talks about these doilies that they have in their house and all this yeah. stuff. But it's like, eh, all for naught now. Exactly. Well, you know, you know what's great though, because I think that Africa is the first season to kind of get a, a not really a loved one visit, but a loved one episode to be not the most awkward thing on the planet, <laughs> even though there always are. Yeah. But you know that Doctor Sean with his with his dad, the boat captain, and Borneo, and then we get this internet cafe where we get you know. Tina's family and then you know Roger's family looks exactly how you it looks like American gothic and then you get like uh, Elizabeth with everybody being named the same and then you get Keith with the awkward marriage proposal and then you get Colby with the thing I mean it's just gold all the way through it's ridiculously awkward I don't see how people can say they hate the second half of Australia just because of that internet cafe scene it's the most fantastic thing ever and I mean again i I think it goes back to the fact that modern Survivor today is built about around strategy. And so when the strategy is not there and it's pagonging, the, the, the episode falls flat. But here we have a pagonging. We have Roger voted out and we had Nick voted out and, you know, Amber voted out. Very, very easy targets. But, you know, we're talking about the flood and the Internet cafe and all of these scenes mm-hmm. that just stick with us forever. And it has nothing to do with strategy or the vote. It has everything to do with how awesome these people were uh-huh. out there in the outback. And then speaking of images that stick with you forever, what about Colby's mom watching him shower? <laughs> and taking pictures. Not... <laughs> taking pictures. <laughs> oh, oh, what he said, he said uh, of everything that happened, the shower is what he was looking forward to the least. But he, at the end of it, <laughs> he ended up enjoying it the most. And his mom would say the same thing. She got all the pictures. <laughs> Imagine her going home and putting him in the album. Yeah, here's my son butt naked in a shower. <laughs> Well, there's there's a lot of things I want to talk about. The, the scene, it's all great. First of all, Colby wins the car, so this is our this is our car curse kind of uh, uh-huh. uh, first going. Colby wins the car, and it is that it's that challenge where they kind of take a, a hodgepodge of the previous challenges, and Colby uh-huh. wins. He wins a new damn car. Uh-huh. I want a car. Oh, it's an Aztec. Yeah, oh. oh shit. It was funny. I was just reading a list the other day of of the top ten biggest flops in American car history. And like number one on this list, nothing to do with Survivor. This is just like an um, automotive thing. The number one is the Pontiac Aztec, which like the review even said was flat out the butt ugliest car ever designed in humankind. For some reason, they thought that, that the consumers would buy a car that looked like that and they wouldn't. And it's funny that it's forever immortalized on Survivor as the car that Colby got. The first car. Yes, the one with a tent built in in the back. Yeah, is that, that's the selling point. You could make it into a tent kind of. Exactly. You can sleep with your mom in there. <laughs> <laughs> and then they set up the awkward scene because like Jeff is there with Colby and they're eating and you know Jeff's like oh you you want some food I'll get the the waiter to bring it out and, yeah. and stuff and then it comes and then it's it's just an awkward setup it's an awkward this and then they like they're like you know leaning over like they both get into the Aztec and I mean yeah they're sleeping apart I'm, I'm you know the obvious joke's not there but you know they, they're just kind of keeled over it's like what you thinking about <laughs> I don't know survivor stuffs <laughs> This one's killing me. I, I love this scene. 
you know, and and then they get in the morning and then Colby's showering and the mom, the, I, I don't know what they were trying to set up with that shot. You know, sometimes yeah. you set up a shot and it's unintentional comedy, right? Like they didn't intend for it to be funny. Yeah. But seriously, they have a shot of Colby showering and the mom looking on so lovingly yeah. at the sun. And it's like, what? <laughs> Just holding Who your cup okay of that? Like, was that Terry? Terry, you messed up real bad, Terry. <laughs> That's funny. You know, it's America's hero. Even his mom fantasizes about him. What I love, too, is, you know, something that, yeah, as awkward as the the beginning setup of the scene is, I do love when when they bring those loved ones back to camp and you get another glimpse of, like we saw with uh, when Sean's dad came back to the island, you get a glimpse uh-huh. of what it, what it's like to go on Survivor. You know, they're asking, or the first thing Colby tells Keith is uh, that the Yankees had won the World Series, mm-hmm. and you know they're kind of getting these glimpses of of real life, and she she brings care packages for each of the contestants, and Keith sees these pictures and gets emotional and has to leave. So you know, yet again another example of, of these episodes. How highlighting what the survivor experience is really like for the survivors. I did like Colby's mom going back to camp. That was a really touching uh, bit of the scene, but here's a little snapshot. I know people listen to us for, you know, our thoughts on the episodes, but just a glimpse as to what was going on. The previews for this episode was, and there's a surprise visit to the camp and you see a helicopter kind of coming in and you see Tina kind of say, welcome to Bear Monday, <laughs> you know, and all that sort of stuff. And the, the big question always was who's, who's, who's the surprise visit. I just sat there and said, Oh my God, it's going to be Mike. I thought it was Mike scooping for sure. I thought, I thought it, was, it was going to be Mike coming back saying, hey, guys, I'm OK. That's how that's how little we knew about oh, yeah. Mike's injury. You know, it's not like, hey, we all knew Mike was fine. We didn't. And then we saw that episode. And it's like, oh, my God, maybe that's Mike. Yeah, I was still thinking it was Steve Irwin. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I didn't have that. They were like, you know, because she was so like, oh, welcome to Barramundi. I think Tina would have probably been like Steve Irwin. Who the yeah. fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, baby. <clears throat> Boy, baby. <laughs> yeah. Ah uh, yes, yeah, we could sit and talk about the Colby and his mom scene forever. The, one of my, one of the most iconic scenes I think from a comic standpoint. You know, I'm the guy who writes the funny 115, the funny Survivor moments, and that's one that, when I think of Australia and you think of funny moments, it really doesn't get much better than unintentionally showing Colby's mom drinking her morning cup of coffee and watching her son shower. Well, not to plug your so much funny115.com. Where yeah. is that on that list? Um, I think I referenced it a couple times, but I didn't give it its own entry. And that was I, I, when I re- made the first countdown, I was a little worried about doing offensive entries or stuff uh. that would, be, would we get, give me hate mail. And I was worried about the moms of America saying, you misinterpreted that. She just loved her son. Knock it off. So I, it didn't get its own entry, but I referenced it all the time. Tip your cameraman, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe they'll paint you in a more flattering shot. <laughs> exactly. So I guess uh, with Roger gone, we're down kind of to the final four here. And this, of course, is where we get into the fact that the one thing that stands out about Australia that's different than every other season is that it was 42 days and not 39 days, which meant that the final four did not get its own episode. I mean, it got its own episode, but it wasn't the finale. Right. That That's the this... Colby's mom, the the high baby. That's the final four episode, yeah. and that's, yeah. that's a whole standalone episode by itself. Yep, absolutely. And it's that's the thing. It's kind of extraneous. You got Elizabeth kind of voted out, but there really didn't need to be any reason for that to be a standalone episode, other than CBS just wanted to have one more episode. They were greedy. You know, it's the it's the most profitable show in TV history. Let's do you know fourteen episodes instead of thirteen, and so that's really what happened there. That we just kind of had to drag out this inevitable Tina or Colby win by giving an extra episode. Well, not I, only I mean, that, but go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, which I will give credit to people who criticize Australia. You know, once 
once uh, the the baby scene is or once a uh, high baby scene is over and, and and her mom you know leaves the second half of that episode you know going into the final you know the the finale leading up to to that final travel council it, it's a pretty slow moving you know section of survivor i mean i i enjoy it because i enjoy these characters you still mm-hmm. like them but it i will i will agree that the pace of it is very slow by the end of survivor of the australian outback yeah it's just they were just it was inevitable they were just dragging it out as long as they could to milk the ratings at that point well they, these people were so tired and so hungry and so lazy i mean they just built like their shelter was literally like five feet you know, it was just like a couple logs that they threw together. I mean, it was literally nothing because they had no energy to build that final shelter up in the hills. And, you know, they have this whole funny – it's a comical scene when you look back on it. It's the scene where they're like – they're talking about how they just sit around and look at the fire because that's, yeah. you know, all they all they physically can do. And it's kind of entertaining. And, you know, you kind of play little games and you kind of watch the fire. And there's this fun confessional with Keith kind of in the fisheye camera lens. And he's kind of, you know – cocking his head one direction and then you know you stare at the fire this way and then for an hour you switch and look <laughs> this way and he kind of cocks his head in the other direction and you know it, it's this real you, you know interesting thing but then when you think about that scene you're like these people have no energy they can't do anything and you know we're a tv show following them and if all they're going to do is lay around camp because they can do nothing else that's mm-hmm. all we have yeah do you guys remember there's one scene right there I forget it's at the start of one of the episodes where it's just the four of them i think sitting around staring at the fire and it's like a full minute of just them sitting, just looking at the fire. There's no music. There's no dialogue. And I've always loved that shot. It just shows what it's like to be on Survivor. It's not glamorous. It's not fun. It's not mind games 24 hours a day. A lot of the times you're just sitting there looking at the fire because you're tired. And I always love that shot. Right. That's, only, at, that's at the final fire when they call it the Outback, uh, Outback it? Television. And yeah. uh, that's the scene they should show to anyone who a lot of people argue like, Survivor should be like Big Brother and offer Survivor live feed so we can watch what's going on all the time. <laughs> show them yeah. that scene. Yeah. Th- I always think that's my single favorite shot of the whole season just because no other season has a shot like that. It's really kind of an artsy shot. And it took a lot of guts to show something like that on TV because it's not entertaining. Nothing's going on. It's just this is a slice of life. This is what happens. Yep, absolutely. And uh, poor Elizabeth gets the axe. America's sweetheart goes home. Paul Osselson was crying from Montana. But, of course, no one heard him because he's in Montana. (laughs) It was like it was like the day after my birthday, too. It was really like or it was like. It was right around my birthday. I remember, actually, I think it was the day before because I remember on my birthday, um, like there was a certain time when I walked, like I watched the early show, and, but then I could never like actually watch like the contestant being interviewed on the early show because I had to leave for school. But I ended up always like uh, you know taping it with my uh, VCR. But I remember uh, deciding to rollerblade to school that day. That way, I could wait about five more extra minutes just to see the <laughs> intro to her, just so I could see what she looked like. And, uh, and then I had to hurry get on my rollerblades and I hurried to school and. Um, I didn't talk about this at all, but like when that season aired, I was like so involved with this that I was like really pushing for the kids in my class to watch it too. And of course, a lot of them did watch it because if their parents watched it, it was you know such a big deal. And everyone knew I loved Elizabeth and stuff. And and so the day after she got voted off, a bunch of girls in the class, I say probably about three or four of them, wore their hair like Elizabeth did in the first episode, where it's kind of like uh, you know kind of pigtails off the side, uh, mm-hmm. crazy pigtails. So um, we were uh, my uh, fifth grade class were big uh, Elizabeth supporters. <laughs> Yeah, it, this is funny. A lot of people don't know this. This is something that Roger Bingham told me once when I had interviewed him. He said that what you guys on TV never saw was how close Elizabeth came to dying in Australia, how sick she was. Like she had lost so many nutrients, her hair was falling out. And he's like, 
Just think about that. In 42 days that a girl that young in the perfect prime of her health was losing her hair. It goes, it takes a lot for the human body to start, you know, falling apart like that. He says, you guys never saw, like, she was getting, like, IVs. They were giving her nutrients. Like, she was really sick. And he said that he'd heard that of all the players the first couple seasons, she was the one that came closest to dying, not Mike, because Elizabeth was so malnourished when she came out of the game. It was almost like a mercy killing. Wow. Yeah. Just dropping a little trivia on you, readers, a lot, or listeners. A lot of people may have not heard that story before, but this is directly from Roger, and he was—he just wanted to stress to me over and over again that when Elizabeth got voted out, it was sad, yes, but at the same time, he was thrilled because he was a parent, and he knew how sick she was. And uh, with that, with uh, Elizabeth being mercy killed right out of the game and going home to the loving arms of Elizabeth and Ken at home, we uh, are now down to the final three, all, which is, of course, an episode many people call the worst episode in Survivor history, which I'm sure we all disagree with, but there's some valid criticism to that, as Paul has said. Well, you know, it's the finale with the dumbest move in Survivor history. <laughs> I, say that, that, I say that with some sarcasm. Of course. Well, you know, and, and editing and editing being what it is and us knowing more about what we are, you know, that, that final three, there's a lot of there's a lot of dead air. There's a lot of time because they're not doing much and they're not, you know, providing a whole bunch of uh, entertainment organically on their own. So, you know, they have the scene where like Keith just goes off and, you know, sits on a rock for 20 minutes and talks about stuff. And, <laughs> you know, as he's sunning himself on a rock, he says, well, I've come to a realization that, you know, uh, it's not about the money. You know, it's it's about something more valuable than money. And it's like, oh, you're dead. Yeah, See you're you later. <laughs> you know, the, the second you say that, you know, it's 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 never good for you. And then they get a fun arts and crafts challenge. And we watch these people make totems so that they can give back to the land. And you're thinking that's stupid. But since they were doing nothing but watching a fire. <laughs> hey, entertainment. Absolutely. It's the highlight of the episode. Although the thing, if you notice, as they're going, and this is also where they do, uh, they go around and, and and get everyone's torches and all that sort of stuff. The uh, uh, you know salute to salute to their fallen foes, and they have these totems. And you know Tina talks about how she wants to make her totem feminine, and Colby says some things about yeah, I really decided I need to get back to the land. And then you look at his totem, and it's like lime green. And it's got, Bright you know, blue. just like, like no feathers, <laughs> no nothing, like looks like some like piece, like piece of crap that you buy at Ikea or something. And he's giving well, back it, to the it, land. It looks like a pimped out. I mean, he was an auto detailer. I mean, it looks like, you know, <laughs> something that would happen on a car. And I'm just sitting there going like, Colby, that's not the most natural looking totem on the face of the earth. I have to tell you. You should add some flames up the side. <laughs> Fire represents life. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's really all we have to talk about of the finale up until the final vote. I mean, Keith gets voted out, all right. I mean, that was kind of a surprise at the end because, you know, Colby can vote out either Keith or Tina, and this is, this is you know, the big moment in Survivor history everyone loves to talk about. Like, what the fuck did Colby just do? Hold on. Before well, we he... get there, we have to say that uh, we were able to identify Nick's shorts, right? During oh, that, yes. <laughs> that final three uh, <laughs> challenge. You know, Nick, <laughs> Nick never really left us. Nick's shorts were there, and we also learned that Amber's proudest accomplishment was Dean's List for five semesters. You know, I used to think, I remember watching that and thinking, wow, the Dean's List, like, Amber was really smart. And then I got to college, and I was like, seriously? Like, I'd like, <laughs> like, I just like, like, I go, yeah, I was at the Dean, uh, Dean's List um, every semester. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm up there with Amber. There you go. You were so good. You only went to college for five semesters? God, you're smart. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that was the one where Nick had the great answer about if you could be stranded on a desert island with anybody, who would it be? And he said the president because he'd be most likely to be rescued. President and the Pope. Yeah, I thought that, that was a really great answer. Again, not to gush on Nick too much, but he is the greatest person ever. It's a good answer. It's a good yeah. answer real bad, Terry. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so that was Fallen Comrades. I think that's the last Fallen Comrades uh, challenge that was not tainted in some way because the producers <laughs> screwed it up, so that was nice. Hooray for see. that. Yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> and Colby, it was not Kel's shorts. Seriously? It was Cal. Cal's shorts, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, the vote. Well, I mean, this this was a big deal then, and, and, and it's, you know... It, it makes more sense when you think about it now and we've got some time to kind of sit there and dissect, but mm -hmm. you know, Colby voted for Keith voted Keith out of the game. I mean, America just, you know, I mean, everyone just cried out, what are you doing? Keith sucks. Yeah. I mean, I was a big Tina fan, so I loved it. That was one of the few moments in survivor history that I was prepared for disappointment. I'm like, ah, here we go. And like, you're com so completely caught off guard because you never saw it coming. So that was like one of my, you know, seminal moments as a Survivor fan. Like, wow, my favorite player just got spared and may have a chance to win now. So that was a big deal for me. But yeah, if you're a Colby fan, um, it just doesn't make sense. And it's there's so much you could say about this episode. I mean, about this decision. And of course, it normally it, uh, normally boils down into people saying, well, Colby's just an idiot, which but it's a lot deeper than that. It wasn't just he's dumb. No, he was he was playing his role. I mean, he he did say, you know, in previous votes, I mean, I guess we did get some foreshadowing because he mm -hmm. did talk about, you know, I'd rather have the people stay here who deserve it mm -hmm. over the people that I know I can beat. And you saw him wrestling with this uh, in several episodes and he went with Tina, you know, because they had a plan and whatnot. And I mean, Colby felt that Tina deserved it and Keith didn't. And, you know, that is what a hero does. A hero, mm -hmm. you know, makes the noble decision. Uh, no matter what, and he did, and it's true to form, and mm -hmm. it's it's absolutely predictable once you think about it in those contexts. But you know, here we are as people trying to figure out this game, and we're not totally naive at this point. We're on board with them and their decisions, and so mm -hmm. you looked at that final three, and you're like, well, Colby will probably win immunity because Colby's won like every immunity ever, mm -hmm. and you know when he wins it, he'll just vote out Tina and take Keith because that's an easy million dollars, uh -huh. and he didn't, and I mean you just felt duped, and then especially afterwards when Keith and Colby and Tina are like, yeah, we did it, we got them all. We were totally gonna, uh -huh. you know, go in there together. And it was like, since when? What? What's going on? Yeah, exactly. That goes back to my point that the producers have never tipped anybody off going into that that Colby and Tina were a team or they were that that close. And so it makes more sense if they had maybe shown that once or twice or kind of tipped people off. But they never do. And then all of a sudden, Keith's gone. Yeah, Colby and Tina are high fiving like, yeah, we won. I'm like, wait, you won what? What did you guys win? I, were you guys a team? So yeah, it's it's really jarring the way the producers kind of chose to show that. Anything about the uh, the questions that stood out to you in the final tribal council as we're moving on here? Um, not specifically. This is one thing my mom always said. I, I think I brought this up before that she to her she died a couple years ago, and to her dying day, she could not understand how Colby lost that final vote. And one thing she always said is like, Mario, you know, all the smartest jurors voted for Colby. She's like Nick. He's the one in law school. Roger, who has a master's degree. Amber, who of course is on the dean's list, so she's Paul level intelligence. Right. She's like they all voted for Colby. Like, she goes the only people that voted for Tina to win is because they just wanted to see a woman win this time. She's like that the Colby should have won that, and you know she made a good point. And as much as I'm a Tina fan, yeah, it's like I I do believe there was a lot going on with that final vote where people just kind of wanted to see a woman win this time, and that's not necessarily the only reason Tina won, but there was a undercurrent of that going on after the first season where this belief that a woman couldn't win survivor too 
I liked uh, Jerry has a question at the end, and I think it, I think she's trying to steer it to her, and I think this is the first in a long line of <laughs> Heidi you know, questions. Try, yeah, Heidi questions, trying to get the attention on yourself, and you know, uh-huh. she talks about like she talks about like making and breaking alliances. And blah, blah, blah. And it says, hey, do you have anything you regret or feel guilty about and stuff like that? And I think she's clearly trying to go like, oh, when well, we backstabbed you and went against Ogacore. And Tina's yeah. like, well, going through Cal's bag was no yeah. good. Yeah. And Tina's like, someone decided to go through Cal's bag. And she looks at Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and, Colby, and, and Colby's like, well, I voted out Roger and Elizabeth and stuff just because uh-huh. I had to. Yeah. Oh, but, and, uh, and, and Alicia, too. He throws Alicia in there, too. Like, like can't even throw one out at Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> and Jerry's like, okay, thanks. Yeah, well, and, then, nice. and, then, and then Jerry's holding on. Maybe he'll address me in his final speech, but then uh, not, not a lack of respect to anyone, but he doesn't have any final words. Yeah, so, that's great. I have none. Do you think Colby blew that game with his answers? Do you think he could have won that vote? I'm curious. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, you I don't mean, I so? don't know. I feel like the people who voted for Tina were pretty set to vote for Tina. Uh-huh. I mean, may, yeah. Well, that's the thing, as, as Jay said earlier, if, if Colby had just pointed out, hey, you guys, I steered all those votes to me at the merge and I won the game for Ogacore, it's possible he wins that game. But again, I don't know if he even realized that was such a pivotal moment. It's possible because, you know, it's, as a player, it's tough to see exactly what the important moments were because you don't see what the viewers see. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the one person I, I do think maybe was up in the air was Alicia, because going into the, the final travel council, they used to do those interviews or kind of what they're thinking. And and she was saying oh, she wanted to see, you know, which one of the two of them is still on their game, still on their toes after all this time is still like, you know, with it and, and can present the best case. And then she says at the reunion that, you know, that um, Tina didn't win one immunity. And so that that was really important to her. So maybe, you know, had Colby pointed out more of a strategy, she, you know, she possibly could have been. You know, swing vote, but I think for the rest of us, you know, especially Keith and and Jerry were you know pretty gung ho. They weren't going to vote for Colby. I don't and, think. And they... maybe, or maybe if uh, maybe if Colby would have said he's going to pay off his best friend's house and uh, put uh, <laughs> and uh, put the interest that is uh, the money would draw every year to a family in need, maybe Elizabeth would have voted for Colby. <laughs> I I don't think that Colby biffed tribal final tribal council. I don't think he really you know did a did a horrible, horrible job. I don't think he helped himself. I mean, I don't sit here and say Colby did a fantastic job at Tribal. I don't think Tina did an incredibly final, uh, uh, great job. I think maybe Colby could have won it had he done something freaking phenomenal. And I, you know, there was different mindsets. Maybe talk about the merge vote. You know, there was a couple other things he could have done and maybe not talk about, oh, I'm going to buy Harley. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all that sort of stuff. Maybe. But I, I don't, I don't, when I when I watch that final tribal council of Australia, I don't look at it and go, "Well, Colby blew it at the final tribal council." Uh, he certainly didn't win it. One of the things I always notice when I watch Australia is that that final tribal council is not heated whatsoever. No one's really mad. Mm-hmm. It's one of the more tame final tribal councils, and it's interesting because you know Colby and Tina like each other. They really are would be happy if either one of them won. I think Tina, even though she's real competitive, would have been happy with Colby winning just because they were a team all along. So it's it's really. It's one of the least uh, harsh final tribal councils there's ever been if you watch it, and I notice it every time. It's just no one really is that upset about anything. Especially compared to season one where you had this woman just like, you know, slaughter Kelly in front of na- on national TV. You know, you're expecting Jerry to pull out something more, but, you know, uh, kind of proof that uh, Jerry wasn't that bad. No, not really. She just <laughs> wants to have a beer with him afterwards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, 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 was, it was real... 
it was real tame, real whatever. And that's why I sit here and say, well, I mean, Colby wasn't fantastic in his final, tri- tri- final tribal council, but you know, he, I don't think he lost it. He just, you know, it just happened. I think everyone was kind of going to vote who they were going to vote for. Mm-hmm. And they voted for that person. And then we start the first in a really long series of traditions of, you know, this year is the first year where Jeff comes back with the votes and says, I'm not reading them now. I'm going to read them live in L.A., mm-hmm. but we're going to have something fucking awesome where I'm going to get into a helicopter <laughs> and then smash cut to L.A. like I drove the helicopter here. Yeah. And then we get and then we always get the really awkward shot where they pan to what the survivors look like now in real life three months later and they've all gained all their weight back. So it looks like they're fat, even though they're not. They don't have it figured out yet. Yeah. And it's bless their heart, you know, because here here they're in the studio and we've got a live band with a didgeridoo playing the survivor theme, which, you know, a live person singing the survivor chant, the theme song that we all know and love, just not 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 unawkward. (laughs) I have to say, yeah. it's really weird. And then they're sitting there, and there's Colby, who's plumped up after gaining his weight back, and Tina, yeah. and clearly they're on a soundstage. Clearly they're watching, but they're wearing their clothes from the Outback? T- Tina yeah. has to wear her buff yeah. as her but shirt. She's, but she's all made up now. She's got all her makeup on. Yeah, She's got her makeup. She's looking fabulous. The clothes are washed and pressed, but they're wearing their clothes out from the Outback, and the jury is all wearing their clothes that they wore at the night of Final Tribal Council. And it's like, oh, give me a break, guys. Yeah, it's particularly jarring if you look at Elizabeth because she's all fully made up. She's got makeup on and she keeps looking at the camera. She hasn't quite got it figured out yet either. It's just a weird transition. That one, the Australia one in particular, and I always, Colby is the one I always laugh at because, like, they jump cut to present day Colby and he looks like Chris Farley, like, because you're used to him being like 50 pounds lighter. Yeah. And, like, you know, Whoa, it's because he, he got that weight back. He got that face weight back. And it was like, <laughs> boy, he carried it in his face there. Yeah. Like, his mom isn't taking pictures of this guy. <laughs> and then they vote and Tina wins and Colby gets all excited and you know seems more excited than Tina which you know whatever and then and then Jeff Probst snuffs Colby's torch that was cool I like that they did that he's like no I'm gonna do it I think they do that up through I think up through Marquette I don't think they do it in Thailand right because he's uh he's hosting then so he doesn't do it oh because yep. it's Brian Gumble doing the uh or in Rosie O'Donnell, sorry. Yeah, Rosie, that's right. All right, so I guess this begs the question. This is one that you could talk about for hours, but was Tina a better player than Colby? I mean, there's so many schools of thought on this. I'm curious what you guys would say. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times in Survivor, it's a pretty clear winner. Um, you know, the the fans can kind of come to a consensus. The players come to a consensus. I think it's one of those, you know, examples where, it's really close in the end. I think it could go either way. Colby could have won, and I think he would have been completely deserving. But at the end of the day, I think the person who won deserved to win. And, yeah. uh, you know, Tina had a little bit better of a, you know, a social game. She had the woman factor going for it. She deserved to win the second season of Survivor. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about getting the most votes at the end. And so the person who wins deserves to win. Uh, but I think Paul is correct. You know, there are some seasons where clearly someone was a more deserving or, or just a better player than the other one, and and they win the, the the season. And then you look at second place or third place, and you say, oh, you know, could they have won? But you can pretty much make a make make a very valid arguments that they they couldn't, and they they were on the short end of the stick, and all of that other stuff. And I think that Australia is is a unique season. Well, not completely unique but it's one of those special seasons where both people in the final two you can you could basically say that it could have gone either way but it went tina's way and and i think that that was probably correct because that's how it happened yeah see i'm never gonna sit here and slam a winner just because i think that's tacky i think survivor fans do that way too much and it's really just rude i think 
So I wouldn't say, oh, Tina does, didn't deserve to win, but Australia is one of those rare seasons. There, it hasn't happened much where I always say two people win rather than one. And maybe All-Stars is the only other season I'd really say that, where it's really a two-person team kind of won the game. And at the end, it's basically a coin flip to which style the jury prefers more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I could easily have seen Colby winning that vote. I don't think he necessarily lost it when he voted Keith out. I think he still could have won. And it really just comes down to, in that second season, what style of gameplay the uh, jury preferred more. And just coming after All-Star or uh, Borneo, where, you know, the male one, the evil villain one, the bad guy one. And like the fact that Tina with the kind of the sweet little mom is the complete opposite of that. I, I always thought it had to have played some little factor in that. Like they just wanted to say they were the complete opposite of Borneo because people were so disappointed with Borneo. And I always have thought in the back of my head that must have been in the Australia jury jurors minds all along that we just can't be Borneo again because people hated the ending of Borneo. So there had to I think there was a lot going on in Australia that wasn't in other seasons. I think so, and yeah. it lends it lends into a couple other conversations. But uh, yeah. I think I think you're exactly right. I think that uh, that both both of them could have won the game, um, and and Tina did. And yeah. you know there were a lot of factors. I think Paul's right. I think you know, the fact that maybe a, a woman uh, this time around might have had you know subconsciously a better shot mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Sometimes it's just your time. You know, it, it really you know it, it sucks if something is predetermined against you, possibly mm -hmm. uh, just to fan reaction beforehand. But there it is. Yeah, and I don't want to sit here and say, you know, Tina shouldn't have won. But what I want to do is I want people to think you can't just sit there and shit on Colby for making a bad choice with Keith because he played a phenomenal game, maybe one of the best games ever. He really manipulated a lot more than he gets credit for. He played a fantastic game. So not to take anything away from Tina, but I think Colby should be ranked right there with Tina, that you should really look at Australia that a really two-person team won that game. So that that's I just I just want to stick up for Colby. Colby really deserves more respect in the Survivor community. Well, and I think that you know, when people rank winners and people shit on winners or they 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 tout some winners over others, I think it's it's all about you know when people watch Survivor, you know people have different strategies, and so it's it's your own your own you know preferences and your own value system that you're bringing to that. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Survivor is this pure strategy game. It's not. It's it's not pure strategy. There's a lot of shit that goes into Survivor. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, there is no objective. Well, this is the best way and this is the best type of winner. It, it really comes down to what you think. Because it's like in this case, I mean, you, even if you, you look back for strategic moves that are different between them, it's like the big pivotal move is Tina convincing Colby to go, you know, switch sides on to, to Tina and Key's side. Okay, well, that's one side. If the other side is uh, Colby leaving the, the weak alliance of Mitch, Mitchell, Jerry, Amber and joining the stronger side, you know? So it's like, what do you, you know, where, where do you put more value on? The person who, uh, who flipped or the person who convinced the person to flip? So, I mean, yeah. they're neck and neck in every sense of it. And then again, you get to the merge, and it's Colby drawing the votes towards him, Tina giving herself up to save Keith. I mean, that's, again, it's they're both doing their part, and that's what wins it for Ogacor, and it wouldn't have worked without both of them doing their role. I, th I think that's exactly correct. I yeah. think that I think we can just close the book on that right now. Absolutely, and I mean, I, I'd really like to just kind of end my thoughts on Australia, saying it's one of my favorite seasons. It will always be the biggest season. It was Survivor was never more popular than it was in Australia. The ratings were huge. The characters were enormous. Despite the fact that it has a reputation for having a boring second half, it was 
the ratings were still fantastic through the second half. People loved it. It was the producers managed to keep interest alive, even though the action didn't always dictate it. So the experience of going through Australia was absolutely at the peak of my Survivor fandom. I mean, I'm so proud that I was there when it aired because that, to me, will be I mean, that's the biggest season of Survivor. That was the one. Australia was the biggie that proved that Survivor wasn't a fluke. They could do it a second time and they could do it bigger and better. And I, I have nothing bad to say about it. Yeah, it will. I always said you can't. For me, for me, Australia, it, it, it's my number one. I think it always will be. And, and you can't really, you know, touch what they did in Australia because I feel like, you know, if you look at Borneo in Australia, obviously you, I mean, you can't discredit Borneo for everything it did. But I mean, just the step, you know, you take from Borneo to uh, to Australia, it's like, you know, Borneo is this fantastic idea of Survivor that's put out to the world, and you know, America loves it. And then it's like Survivor Australia is taking this great idea and actually making it a real TV show that's going to be this monster that goes on for 12 plus years, you know, to mm-hmm. be to be this great show. So, I mean, they, they almost go hand in hand. I mean, you can't I don't think you can give credit to to just Borneo or just Australia because, you know, the future of Survivor depended on what happened in Australia. You know, had us had they had Steve Irwin out there and it just was a piece of crap. You know, <laughs> I mean, Survivor wouldn't wouldn't be around anymore. That's for sure. Yeah, I agree. Survivor Australia is is about the people and the story and the 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 road we go there and all a lot of our archetypes you know not necessarily the birth of our strategy but the birth of our archetypes really happen in Australia and I'll always say that today and if you need more proof and I don't I can't say for 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 instance that this is 100% accurate but if you look at Survivor 20 heroes versus villains you watch the opening credits the famous opening credits they start with the hero tribe first. Who's the first hero that comes up on the board? It's, it's Colby. Colby. Yep. And then they go to the villains. They introduce second. Who's the last villain they show? To Jerry. It's Jerry. Yep. Mm-hmm. They bookend that thing with Colby and Jerry because they are our start to this whole series of characters. And I mean, that's that 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 season was so character driven mm-hmm. that it's just so great. And anyone that's like, oh, it sucks because the strategy was boring. Ah, screw the strategy. Watch the people. Watch the story. Mm-hmm. Watch them out there. It's just compelling television from start to finish. And one other thing I like to point out, just from like a, a talking point point of view, where. People were talking about Survivor. I mean, Borneo had some huge moments. It had the Gretchen vote. It had Richard winning, Richard stepping down, you know, Colleen. But, like, if you just want debate, like, would you have done that in this situation, a talking point? Colby's decision to take Tina to the end is more interesting than almost anything that happened in Borneo, just from a psychology point of view. Because, mm-hmm. it's again, it's not just, oh, Colby's an idiot. No, there was so much behind that decision. And we couldn't even begin to do it justice. We could talk about it for an hour, like... He's got a, probably a little mommy complex. He loves his mom. He sees Tina as, a, as an outback surrogate mom. Tina kind of brainwashed him. Maybe Colby rather was more interested in being the good guy and getting a career rather than winning. Maybe he wanted thought Tina needed the money more than he did. I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot going on in that decision, and it's just a, a huge talking point that you can't think about Australia without talking about that decision. And I think it's irresponsible just to boil it down to, well, Colby made a mistake. Colby was an idiot because I don't think that's true at all. No. You, you can't. Uh, Colby, you know, it, it's it's all in the character of Colby, and it's uh-huh. it's it's a matter of understanding who Colby is and what Colby is. And a lot of times in modern days, you don't get that idea. You just get an idea of someone's strategy or just, you know, who, who their alliance is or how they're thinking. But you got to know who Colby was. And, you know, really, you take that into effect, it makes a lot more sense. 
<laughs> One thing right before we wrap up Australia here is I got to mention this. This is something that I've never written about before, but it's people will get a kick out of it. What I remember is that, you know, Tina kind of comes out of nowhere as a winner. She wasn't really wasn't spoiled on the message boards. No one really saw her as a winner. There weren't a lot of clues. But I remember right after Tina won or maybe the day before Tina won, there was some guy on a on a survivor message board somewhere said, "Oh, I'm a I'm a hairdresser in Hollywood and Tina wins. Everyone's known that for 2 months." And like someone said, "What really?" He's like, "Oh yeah, there's this this huge uh alliance of gay hairdressers in in Hollywood. We all watch Survivor, we all talk about it. People know all the producers and it's been well known that Tina has won for 2 months. So I'm surprised you guys didn't know." So I always think about that and laugh when I think of <laughs> Australia. Like, "Oh yeah, apparently everyone was well known that Tina that won and just I guess the the mainstream audience wasn't tipped off about it." <laughs> Well, and, uh, well, well, Tina didn't. Well, Tina, you know, pe- she came out of left field. Most people didn't see Tina winning, but someone did. Exactly. And we're going to leave right into this. This is something Jay wanted to talk about specifically. And we got a ton of reader submissions about it. It's this is the dog that didn't bark. And Jay, you can clue us in on that. I'm not a big uh, Survivor Sucks person in the past and whatnot, but I was aware of it and aware of the boards. And I did catch one of this uh, a while ago. And it's something I hadn't thought about for for a while until, you know, the last few years. And uh, there was a, a someone who posted on Survivor Sucks, and uh, the main part of their handle was Tape Watcher. And Tape Watcher had this post where he talked about how uh, he or she, but we'll, we'll just use he for the for the uh, the the thing going on here. The Tape Watcher watched the first episode of Survivor: of The Australian Outback, and then subsequently watched all the episodes kind of up to the merge, but then did a re-evaluation of the first episode of Survivor and used editing clues in that first episode to figure out who the winner of Survivor was and posted this thing on Survivor Sucks with, with screen cap shots and all of this kind of evidence pointing, and it was this really long essay. But the essay was entitled The Dog That Didn't Bark, and his whole thing, and we touched on it on the previous uh, episode uh, of this podcast, was that... When you watch the hike in, uh, in, the, in the first episode of the Australian Epic, they step off the plane, they hike to camp. In the hiking to camp scene and in the subsequent scenes of building the shelter, we get uh, a main camera shot from 15 of the 16 survivors. Tina is the only one that does not get a main camera shot. When they're watching people build the shelter or try to make fire at the camp, we see 15 of 16 people actively working as the solo sole person or the main person in a shot working either on the shelter or in building the fire. Everyone but Tina, 15 of the 16 survivors in the first episode of Survivor get a get a confessional. Tina is the only one that does not get a confessional. Tina gets uh, one spoken line in the first episode, and it's when she's off screen and she gets like one solo pan uh, to her, and it's when she's doing nothing. They visibly hid her in that first episode, and the person, uh, tape watcher, basically sh- pointed out all of these instances where everyone else got a confessional, everyone else got a working shot or a hiking in shot, and Tina was the only one, and basically conjectured that it's the dog that you didn't see, the dog that didn't bark, which is a Sherlock Holmes reference, I think, that. Uh, Tina is going to win Survivor. And, you know, he then backed it up by showing that, you know, all of these things that Tina did that we talked about, getting the Kimmy vote from uh, from Kimmy uh, in, yeah, the Varner vote uh, from Kimmy in in Kucha. We didn't see that on tape. You know, we didn't see her doing a lot of her strategizing on camera. It was done off camera. You know, Tina was a strategic mastermind and a real, you know, badass. And, you know, we saw glimpses of it here and there, but they kept a lot of that off the screen. And so uh, Tape Watcher said because they 
purposely didn't show Tina in this first episode and they continued that pattern through the next little bit through the merge, you can basically conjecture that Tina is the one that's going to win Survivor. And everyone looked at this post and said, okay, that's a whole lot of okay. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out to be right. Yeah, what's funny, is this what this kind of points out here is that the way they edit Survivor is completely different now than how they used to do it, in particular the second season, because the key to Survivor back then was secrecy. The producers did not want people to know what was going to happen because it would ruin the surprise. And like nowadays, when a winner wins, they try to tell the winner's story. But if you watch Australia, they don't try to tell Tina's story. The way it's edited is it's it was edited in 2001 editing style, which is secrecy. So they're going out of their way not to tip off Tina the entire season, and that's what Tape Watcher picked out. And what's funny is we'll get to it next season that Tape Watcher also picked out Ethan as the winner for a different reason, but he nailed him real early as well. And it's really funny to show how Survivor has kind of evolved over the years that they had no interest in telling the winner's story or selling the winner back then. Back then, the key to the game was keeping the secret from the audience as long as they could, and that's what they did with Tina. Yeah, and you know Ethan has a different kind of thing, and we'll get to Tape Watcher there. And the mm-hmm. unfortunate thing is that Tape Watcher, he, you know, Tape Watcher made the post about Tina in mm-hmm. Australia, and then he makes the post about Ethan in Africa, and we don't get another Tape Watcher post. Tape Watcher predicted Australia and Africa, mm-hmm. and that was it. That was and it. you know, there's a lot of conjecture on who is Tape Watcher. There, we don't know to this day who Tape Watcher is. And hey, this is Survivor sucks, anonymity rules over there, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But you know, the, a lot of things, you know, and personal opinions on who the heck is Tape Watcher. Uh, I think the Tape Watcher might have been, you know, an editor at the time at uh, on Survivor, so that you know, because all this stuff was really, really specific and all that sort of stuff. And you know, maybe not, but uh, it's it, it's an interesting thing to, to to play around because you know, Tape Watcher came for two seasons and then stopped, and yeah. we didn't get Tape watcher ever again but it has spawned all of this you know editing analysis edgic over on survivor sucks you know i'm not going to say it all was born with tape watcher but you know it was popularized because tape watcher went on there and said yeah you look at the edit you can figure it out and mm-hmm. everyone said holy crap you can yeah well, well even i was gonna leave, even go ahead. Leave, well even leaving start again well, even leading up to the season, I remember I kept a notebook in my living room, and any time a Survivor commercial would come on, I'd grab the notebook and, and write down the contestants, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that was, as a fifth grader, that was the only way I would get the contestants, is they introduced them via commercial. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, not to say that I saw every single commercial of Survivor that happened, but I got 15 out of the 16 of them. Tina, I did not get. Mm-hmm. So I feel like even before the show, there, you know, Tina wasn't one of our highlighted people who was shoved down our throats. Yeah, and again, this is uh, what I was going to – I'm going to back up what Jay said about Tape Watcher, that uh, this dog that didn't bark thing came out. And, like, some people kind of paid attention to it, but it was not treated like gospel. And, again, Mm. he wasn't the only guy doing stuff like this. There was other posts out there, oh, I know who wins, here's why so-and-so wins. But it wasn't until later in the season, I think maybe even after Tina won, that someone kind of picked out, hey, this guy Tape Watcher called it just for this exact reason. And so it was kind of a retroactively, hey, this guy was a genius, but it wasn't really appreciated at the time. And also there was a little undercurrent of, well, I don't think people necessarily wanted to know who was going to win, too. So it was it was not as celebrated as it probably should have been at the time, even though he nailed it right off the bat. Yeah. And I mean, it was a it, it was a spoiler, but not a spoiler. You know, yeah. it was not like I have insider knowledge. It was just I looked at the episode. I looked at the editing techniques mm-hmm. and this is how I determined a winner. And, uh, you know, people try to do this to this day. It's, it's something I like to, you know, try to dabble in from time to time. It's, it's something where you try to look at the, epi- at the editing or, or, in my opinion, it's looking at the story and trying to figure out the story they tell, which is more of a modern survivor uh, 
uh, idiom than it was back then. But, uh, you know, Tape Watcher nailed it. And tape, you know, you can do that if you, I'm sure if you, you know, can do internet search engine things really well, you can find Tape Watcher's essay today. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you read it and you and you know what happens in Australia Outback, you can look, at, look back at this person who posted this as the season was going on and say, holy crap, this person was on the money. Yep. And again, I just have to reiterate that Survivor was edited and portrayed differently back then. And that's, it's, it's really hard to understand the, the uh, impact of Tape Watcher's you know, discoveries if you don't understand that that was the, the key to the show back then was keeping the winner from the audience. It was completely backwards from now. There was absolutely no effort to sell the winner. They wanted to hide the winner. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Which, in a way, kind of screws Tina's legacy in a way, because here we are defending Tina and saying Tina's a badass. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, Tina, Colby should have won. And it's like, no, Tina did, did what she needed to do, and she was actually pretty much of a badass. And if they had shown it and not hit it, you know, as Tape Watcher uh, saw and as we were pointing out, then, you know, maybe Tina today is revered. Yeah. Really and it, revered. Yeah, and see, a second thing that hurts Tina's legacy is that Burnett never wrote a book about the second season, and I've always thought that was a huge injustice because, you know, Burnett, Mark Burnett wrote this great book about the first season, all this behind-the-scenes insider stuff, all these, you know, tidbits and things you never saw on the show that impacted the season. And so Borneo was really well-documented, every single thing that happened. And you just don't have that for Australia. So kind of what you have are just tidbits that came out in interviews or just uh, documentaries or stuff like that, just clips you've heard, audio clips over the years. So there's a lot that Tina doesn't get credit for that she should have, and it's it really wasn't fair to her. You know, the first female winner to this day, people still say, well, she only won because she was nice. I'm like, she didn't win because she was nice. She won because she kicked their ass. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Any other questions uh, you want to share with us? Uh, there was one, actually. Uh, uh, this came up a lot, and I know I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, that people wanted to know why Jerry was such a big villain and really what a villain meant back then as opposed to now. And I know Paul, he wanted to prepare a little thing on this. Right. Well, I mean, I just think... I mean, I alluded to this a little bit in the, la in the last podcast, and you know, a lot of what I want to talk about, we, we covered, you know, with the downfall of Jerry and what a what a big falling out it was to have Jerry go. But people have to remember that, you know, Survivor kind of was the face of reality TV back then. Mario talked about it before that, you know, the media wanted to to see reality TV fail, and Survivor was the face of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, this the way Survivor was presented to us, it was kind of a first, you know, one of the few chances that you know, America got to watch TV, see real people and really connect with these real people. And it's really hard for new, new people who've grown up with reality TV their whole lives, you know, to, to understand what that was. And, and to have someone like Jerry on, you know, if she's on 10 years later, she's by no means a villain at all. She's kind of, I mean, she's probably still would be an interesting character, but, but, you know, people didn't go on a show and, and purposely try to be hated because they knew that people would love that or the people would, you know, love to hate them. Like, that was not a concept back then. So, um, you know, just the, the legacy that Jerry, I mean, it's it's really interesting, but in a lot of ways I feel bad for all the, the ridicule Jerry has gone through in her life being the <laughs> most hated woman, you know, ever. I mean, I'm just like, I think back to the reunion show she's on and, and she makes some comment about how she's like, you know, I don't expect everyone in my life to like me. And Brian Gumbel's like, oh, well, that's a good bet. <laughs> and everyone, you know, like, you know, you know, cheers. And even when, she gets, <laughs> even when she gets to the all-star finale, she gets booed off the stage because she just starts talking and, oh, we hate Jerry, boo. So really sucks for her as a person but i mean as far as you know what reality tv is and and who these characters are she, she was really pivotal in that 
Yeah, she. I mean, unfortunately for her, this is a poor choice of words, but she was the right place in the right time, the right place at the right right person in the right place at the right time. She just happened to be there. They needed a villain on Survivor. They needed Australia to have a little more punch and kick than Borneo. And all right, we're just going to take this girl who's a little annoying and a little spoiled and turn her into a huge villain. And man, did they get what they wanted and much to Jerry's uh, detriment because I'm sure that's not what she expected. Well, she did garner a lot of fame out of it. She, you know, she was the big survivor villain for a long time and she Mm -hmm. did, uh, she did get to milk that for quite a bit. And uh, I don't know if that quite makes up for the, you know, (laughs) big, big edit she received in that villain category. But, uh, you know, she, I'm not going to sit here and say she embraced it or she became it because that's not true. She seems like a real nice person all the way through. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she, she was able to play it up, you know, at at least for that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those live by the sword, die with a sword. You know, you get a lot of appearances, you get a lot of extra mileage out of your villain role. And then, you know, Maybe when you're not doing something super villainous like showing up and being innocuous at the uh, Survivor All-Stars reunion show, you get booed off stage, which sucks. But, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, monkey's paw thing. She went on Survivor expecting to get notoriety and a little bit of uh, exposure for her acting career. And that's exactly what she got. So be careful what you ask for. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We got a whole bunch of user questions or reader questions here. I'm just going to go through. I, we, we normally try to do a two-hour podcast. We're going to go a little over here, so you're going to get some bonus minutes here. So we apologize if we're keeping you up. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm just going to skim through. I don't apologize, by the way. Yeah, screw all of you. We're glad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fuck you. <laughs> all right, this is from uh, Sheehan and Shidia from Australia. He wrote, um, Survivor Australian Outback is probably as popular as Survivor ever got. What is something about that season that never happened again in history? be at a show interviewing them afterwards or the like. And I mean, in terms of fandom, not the game. What's something that happened in that season that never happened again? Um, the obvious answer is it was 42 days. It was just dragged out a little bit. Um, Colby breaking the law, stealing the coral. Those were big deals at the time. Can you guys think of anything else? What did it do? I mean, it, it was just... friends. It beat friends. <laughs> yeah, oh. beat friends. There you go. That's funny. That's actually a reader question coming up in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It showed it showed us that the Pontiac Aztec could be a tent. That's true, and we we learned that Jerry can cause a child to cry tears of joy. <laughs> she, I, think, cu- I, she also, main... I also heard she cured a blind child. Oh, that was great. She's like Jesus. <laughs> you know, Jesus was hated at first too. There you go. Misunderstood. Right. This is from a reader named Jason Rothel. He said. You should discuss how Elizabeth's success turned her into basically Sarah Palin and how her love for Roger turned so darkly into hate for minorities, gays, right to choosers, and the poor. My suspicion is Jason does not like Elizabeth. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it's it's an interesting, you know, person to look at, Elizabeth, someone who, when she was on, you know, reality, when she was on the show Survivor, obviously nothing about her political views came up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's America's sweetheart, the, the, easily, the, you know, the most loved person from that season. And then she's, you know, she, I mean, she by far has, you know, had the most success after Survivor. And she's on a show where she is, you know, she's paid to give her opinion on things. And all of a sudden, you know, America hates her. So, I mean, the, the one thing I do think that Elizabeth does get, you know, not, not to get political by any means, but the one thing I think Elizabeth, that Elizabeth does get some you know, unfair credit for is that she like on the view, she's this hateful person that hates minorities, hates gays, which really isn't the case. I mean, she's, she's a, she's a a big time Republican economically, even, uh, you know, some other issues, but, 
by no means would I consider her like a racist, hateful person. So I'm, I'm hoping a lot of that has to do with fun because I do think, I mean, you see who she is in the National Outback. Obviously she's a nice, kind-hearted person. She doesn't, I mean, hate people. So I, I just, even though I, when people ask me who my favorite survivors are of all time, you know, I, my, my favorites are Sandra, Amanda, and Elizabeth. But if you take into the fact who they are outside of the game, I mean, Sandra wins by far because Sandra's awesome in the game and outside the game. You know, any any interview she does on Facebook, whatnot. Amanda, Elizabeth, not so great outside of the game. So, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah you have to kind of keep that in perspective. Yeah, we, we can only really base these people on what they do in the game. I mean, you know, a lot of people try to friend survivors or talk to survivors, and it's really funny because they see someone on in the game and you know they may be really nice or they may be really mean and then you know they may have an interaction with them in real life and they can say oh well i thought that person was was mean or or something like that and then i met them in in real life and they were actually nice and it's like well yeah they're they're people you know mm-hmm. and and for the most part they're really nice people and you know but we're judging them just based on the character that was portrayed on tv either by them or by editing or by whatnot and you know elizabeth seems like a nice person we have to remember she went on the view she replaced what debbie matinopoulos who you know <laughs> was was revered you know she was the the token young person on the on the on the view and you know she just she would try to open her mouth in those debates and everyone would just say shut up you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) yeah and so elizabeth replaced her and you know elizabeth you know has had tv experience she's on survivor she you know is very sparkling and bright and witty and you know all those sorts of things and i mean the show just evolved and talking this that and you know you have a lot of left-wing people on there and elizabeth is you know from a more conservative background and i think she just had to dig her heels in and Mm -hmm. and go for it and you know she's created a persona for herself. Yeah, see, I don't think Elizabeth has changed that much. I think this is a lot of people, they see her and they're like, oh, she sucks now, she changed. I don't think she's changed all that much. If you look at the people she hung out with and was close to in in Australia, she's close to Mike and Roger, who are, I mean, more than likely hardcore conservative Christians, Republicans. So like, I don't think Elizabeth's changed that much. I don't think Roger or Mike would be that different if they were on The View either. It's just she's a young, outspoken female on TV in a very liberal world. She's one of the few conservatives on TV. And, you know, outspoken young females on TV don't tend to fare that well, especially when you're the only conservative and a whole liberal fan base. So it's like I don't think she's changed that much. She's doing exactly what they pay her to do, what they want her to do. She's, I mean, she's the probably the most successful Survivor alumnus. She's made a huge career out of it. So, I mean, I, I don't really get the Elizabeth hate other than you disagree with her politics. But, you know, you probably disagreed with her politics back then, too. You just didn't know it. Right. All right. What else we got here? Uh, reader question. This is from uh, Brian Disman. He writes in, Australia was not able to finish strong like Borneo what did. So that may be a good thing to bring up. Not nah, forget you. I don't even <laughs> want to answer that. We already talked about that. <laughs> Australia finished just fine. It just was a different type of season than Borneo. It finished just, I mean, it was fine. It was... People were happy with it when it aired. It was a good season. That's that's really all I can say about that. Anything else you guys want to add on that one? No, I nope. mean, I think it was important for a lot of people to see that good could win out in the end. I mean, I think people liked having a good feeling. You know, I think if those first three or four winners had all been, you know, the, the, the evil person or the bad person, I don't know that Survivor would have fared that well. I mean, it was nice seeing that the nice, you know, mom from a, from Tennessee could win the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, that it's, and that it's a variety. You know, Richard won, and, and Richard was a, you know, mid-40s uh, corporate man, you know, uh, and, and he managed to win the game against people that were younger or, you know, faster or this, that. And then Tina wins in the, in the second season. Tina is, you know, very small. 
and you know very nice and she wins the game and then you know as we move on with the winners we get a nice variety of winners which i think can only help the franchise all right we got next reader question about australia someone wrote in is it true that the wiggles are the number two most highly paid entertainers in the country now you know when i said about australia questions i I meant the season survivor australia not australia in general so people come on move on here (laughs) next we got uh alex jordan wrote in he said Talk about the stage challenges where they redid the aerial shots of a few challenges and the media went crazy. Um, This is something, again, the media was so excited to take down reality TV. They wanted to show that Survivor was fixed. Everyone hated it. They just wanted it to die. And it came out that, you know, Survivor reshoots a couple scenes with body doubles, like during challenges if they want to get a, a certain shot. And man, did some of the media outlets go nuts about this. Oh, Survivor's fixed. It's staged. They use body doubles. It... It wasn't true. It's just, you know, them try it's aesthetically them trying to capture certain shots using body doubles. They didn't change any outcomes, but yeah, this came out. It was a big deal like the the Stacy Stillman lawsuit. It was all over the news for a while, you know, people trying to bring down Survivor. It never really went anywhere, but at the time it was a big deal cuz yeah, this was all oh, Survivor's fixed. And, oh, blah, 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 and the media jumps on it like they always do. I, I have a I have a bad news for people out there and that it's most television and radio that you see is extremely extremely controlled um i knew someone that worked at a radio station when i you know was uh living in los angeles and uh you know he he, you know they i think christina aguilera or some pop star was coming in later in the week to be interviewed and uh, he called me up one afternoon it's like 6 30 p.m you know on a tuesday and said i need you to ask this question to christina aguilera and i said what is she on the line right now? He's like, no, she's coming in in a few days, mm-hmm. but, but you know, we need reader questions. And so he gave me the question and he recorded me just over the phone asking the question. And later on that, you know, week when they have Christina, they're like, Oh, we've got some callers on the line, caller line one. And I heard my voice asking Christina Aguilera a question. And, you know, it was right then when I realized that none of this stuff is impromptu or, or, or live or anything like that. I mean, it's all kind of carefully crafted and staged. And, you know, they may redo things or they may show uh, some other members or stand-ins just uh, in overhead views. And if you're sitting here thinking that your viewing experience has been gypped because of that, well, everything you've watched on TV is gypped because it's all like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, we got a, a question from Lee Bartlett who writes in. She writes, talk about Alicia because she's awesome and I forgot her about her until my rewatch. All right, so yes, I will talk about her. Alicia yeah. is awesome, and it's a shame you forgot about her until you rewatch. Work your magic. Alicia's great. It was, you know, when they made an All-Stars and they picked Alicia, no one batted an eye because she was considered an All-Star. So, yeah, Alicia's awesome. People have kind of forgotten that over the years, but she was gold in just about every scene she was in just because she was pissed all the time. <laughs> she was always pissed off. I love Alicia. Yeah, it's, I mean, she was a legitimate All-Star that's kind of been forgotten over time, kind of like Kathy from Barcasis. She- we'll get to her <laughs> later, but yeah, same deal. She got a lot of mileage over the fact that, you know, she kind of not floated is not the right word. But, you know, we saw her talking with Jeff in in Australia, just uh, Varner about, you know, certain strategic stuff. But, you know, she's just kind of there and, and commenting on the people. And then, you know, the merge happens and she gets voted out pretty quickly. First member of the jury. And then, you know, she when we get to all stars, we'll famously talk about how she she was bragging about how she didn't have an alliance. It's like, hmm, Alicia, <laughs> it's a lot of mileage for not a lot of, uh, you know real strategizing there on tv but what are you gonna do yeah alicia was great i mean she was easily one of the biggest characters at the time of the season yeah um lee bartlett writes in again this isn't so much a uh, question as it is a comment she said 
Their camp flooding and being washed away was ridiculously hard for me to watch. I found it to be really emotional, devastating. Yet they all had the balls to stick through it and keep going when pansies are quitting now over some rain. <laughs> Which, that's a good point. I mean, they had, they had balls. They were tough people back then. I don't know if it just wasn't an option to quit or if there was more at stake and they all wanted to get through it. But, yeah, they, no one quit in Australia when, by all means, someone should have. Well, that's everyone's competitive nature, right? I mean, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to quit. Okay. See ya. Uh, here we go. Here's one. You'll appreciate this one, Paul. This is from T-Dub on Twitter. I don't know his real name, but T-Dub. T-Dub asked, what makes Colby version 1.0 so great and Colby 2.0 and 3.0 such a dud? <laughs> oh, poor Colby. <laughs> I know. I don't know. You got any thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, I don't... I mean, okay, so I it just you just watch it. He's just a badass, and I mean, later on, it's twelve years later. People a little bit different. The types of challenges are different. The you know, I think a lot of it too in the later seasons is just how it's presented to us. Like, I don't think Colby Donaldson is that much different in Heroes versus Villains and in All Stars as he was back then. It just doesn't work out for him. So the story we're presented with him is. He's not this great hero anymore, and so of course we're going to focus on on all the wrong things he does and how he loses at these challenges and stuff. But I mean, look at the challenges in Australia. I think they're way more badass and and hard to do, and he and he kicked butt on them. So I guess I don't have much more than that to say. Well, here's Colby. He's 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 in there in Australia. We've got Nick Brown and we've got Roger Bingham and we've got Mike Scoopin before he burns his hands off and Jeff Varner. I mean, Colby is you know. Big fish, small pond, you know, as far as physical dominance there. And then we get to All-Stars, and, I mean, he wasn't, you know, super dominant. But, I mean, Mogo Mogo did pretty well in a lot of those challenges. I mean, they weren't uh, uh, embarrassments. And then he gets to Heroes versus Villains. And, you know, we've had many, many years since Colby's been on the show, and we've got the likes of of, uh, of James and, you know, Rupert's back, and we've got Coach, and we've got, you know, these super competitive people who also, you know, have a lot of muscularity. And Colby is 10 years older, and, mm-hmm. you know... Game is, I wouldn't say the game's passed him by, but uh, Survivor has got a lot more uh, uh, people to draw from to, to be challenge hogs as well. Yeah, one of the things that I remember reading in an interview is, you know, Colby was big on the adventure. He loved being in the outback, exploring, going and walking around, collecting shells, just being outdoors. He loved that. And on current Survivor, they don't allow the players to do that anymore. I remember reading that, you know, players aren't allowed to go fishing in the ocean. You're not allowed to wander past a certain boundary anymore. And, like, Colby got to Heroes versus Villains, and they're like, oh, uh, so-and-so, like, you have to stay here. You can't wander. You can't hunt. You basically just have to sit here and strategize. And Colby's like, well, that sucks. I don't want to do that. So he just kind of checked out because it wasn't fun. And that's kind of what I think is under, underscores a lot of Colby's, people call him a dud now. It's just the game isn't fun anymore because it's not the same game he originally signed up for. It's not, there's no adventure to it anymore. And I just, I think it shows because his heart just wasn't in it anymore. I mean, it's a whole different game. He was there because he, he was obligated to, you know, he signed a contract. He's friends with pro- probes. He said he'd come back. He gets there, and he's like, this just isn't any fun. So I just don't think he has the same spirit in him that he always had. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Maniac Boy on Survivor Sucks writes, Talk about how the Outback had the best soundtrack out of all the seasons. I loved how they would have epic music during the challenges and all the sad music with the touching scenes. Australia definitely had the best soundtrack, and I'd agree with that, too. This goes back to something we said earlier, how much love they put into the season from a production standpoint. Just It had its own soundtrack. A few seasons have that. And it has a yup. The yup, or as we like to say, the meatball sub. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, crocodile would love a meatball sub, right? <laughs> I, I have a dog who's not unlike a crocodile. He would like anything, so I'm guessing a crocodile would be the same. Well, and Australia had so many highs and so many lows, you know? I mean, we had the camp flooding, and we had all these serious, weighty, heavy moments. Mike Scoop in his episode. And then we had all these fun moments, the, uh, the Doritos challenge and the picnic. And we had all of these, like, wacky, zany moments. We have the moment with Keith running around catching grasshoppers, you know, with a, with a net running through the field. We had all these, like, high and low moments. And, you know, when you have those extremes, you can, you know, then have a soundtrack to go with it. And you've got all these kind of hills and valleys to take the music on as well. All right, we got two more questions. Here's one. Uh, how did Olivia Newton-John come to America and become a singing sensation? I mean, people, Australia, the survivor season. I don't, we don't want to ask questions about the, the country itself. Again, Dude, move, move do, on, people. Do not make Mario get physical. <laughs> exactly. You got to man up, people. Come on, we're almost to the end here. All right, the last question. Here we go from Malacabras. This is an excellent one to end on. You sort of mentioned the buildup for Survivor 2, but you should go more in depth on how hated Survivor was by certain media outlets, specifically Friends. I remember right before season two aired how Susan Sarandon was guest starring on an episode of Friends, and in the media she blasted anyone that would dare watch something like Survivor over Friends. And there was stuff like this all over the media. Can you guys talk about that? And Yeah, this is, again, something you kind of had to live through to... Uh, to remember or understand but yeah everyone had wanted wanted survivor to fail anybody involved in the media anybody who you know worked for the screen actors guild or writers union because reality tv kills jobs there's no writers there's no actors and so like if reality tv is on the air real actors or real writers real producers lose their jobs they don't get paid so it was in everyone in the media's best interest that survivor died and so you would get a lot of this in the in the news that uh, survivor sucks i can't believe there's imbeciles that watch that crap on the air this is even pre-9-11. It went to a whole new level after 9-11. But this was even back in before that. And then Survivor goes up against Friends, and this became this like holy war of, are you going to watch a reality TV or are you going to watch the number one sitcom in America? And Survivor actually took down Friends. It beat it, which, is, which was unthinkable that anything could beat Friends. So this was, there was a lot going on where Survivor was not really being rooted for by anybody, by any stretch of the imagination in mainstream media. No, and... Uh... I mean, it, it beat Friends. It, it just got it just got huge, huge, huge ratings. Uh, and and I know that when I when I think of television shows that I'd like to watch, I think I think to myself, what would Susan Sarandon watch? <laughs> exactly. All right, do you guys have any more thoughts? We're just about at the two and a half hour mark here. We should really wrap up. We've we've gone four and a half hours on Survivor, the Australian Outback, and I don't think anybody thought that was possible. Great season. If you don't believe us, you don't take our words for us. Go back and rewatch it. Absolutely. Watch it from a perspective as if you were watching this live week after week and you didn't know anything but Borneo. It's it's really a fantastic season. I really have very little bad to say about it. No, and it's a, it's a character piece. And, you know, these early seasons really spell out. I think Paul hit it so on the head earlier this uh this podcast when he basically said that a lot of those post-merge episodes in Australia really show you what survivors go through, what camp life is like, what it's like to get a big reward, what it's like to, you know, eat a whole bunch of food in this auction, uh, what it's like to, you know, lose your energy, not be able to get natural fishing. You know, a lot of the stuff that is glossed over today, you really get in depth in Survivor. So a lot of people like to go back and watch and go, this sucks. This doesn't look like token chains or, or you know, or Micronesia or these seasons that are, you know, just less about the environment and just more about the moves and the backstabbing and the, this, that. And it's like, it's, it's not about that. It's about the experience out there. And if you go with that mindset in, it's going to be really rewarding because it is just fantastic television. 
And of course, that leads us right into the next season, Survivor Africa, which, you know, if they did Survivor twice, how could they possibly do it a third time? Lots of people were waiting for it to fail. Lots of people were trying to see if it would be big. Lots of people were excited to see Africa in person. And then, of course, you got 9-11, which, I mean, not to minimize 9-11, but really mucked up a lot of things in the Survivor world. And we'll have plenty to talk about in our next podcast. I hear Mother Africa warming up. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, I think on that, we will just sign off for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Mario Lanza. This is Jay Fisher. This is Paul Asselson. And we will see you soon on the next installment of the Survivor Historians. The Survivor Historians are aware that the Flight of the Concords are not Australian. Thank you. Oh, oh my God. It is so good. Oh, my God. It is so good. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my god! And we're sliding here. Oh my god! Look at the rolls! Oh, you were just talking about rolls! I love rolls! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Is that so good?